This episode is brought to you by Bubs Naturals, and one of the most profound new supplements I've added to my own diet is collagen. And Bubs provides the only collagen that is not only NSF certified, but also Whole30 certified. Now, when we think of collagen, you might think of beauty products, but when ingested, collagen not only positively affects skin, nails, and hair, but also joint and gut health, something that I witnessed personally within myself. Now, I'm also a huge fan of altruistic business, and Bubs was founded out of tragedy. Glenn Bub Doherty was one of the two Navy SEALs killed in Benghazi. And his friends, Sean and TJ, founded this company to not only create great nutritional products, but also take 10% of the proceeds and donate them to charity. So they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 20% off your first purchase if you use the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear more about the inception of Bubs and Glenn's powerful story, listen to episode 558 of Behind the Shield podcast with Sean Lake. This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot. And they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May. And again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates. And that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the US. My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, 
go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show former Navy SEAL and Chief Operating Officer for Katsu, John Doolittle. So we discuss a host of topics from John's early life, his journey into the Navy, the physical and mental toughness that took him through buds, his perspective on war, the Tampa Bay Frogman swim, blood flow restriction training, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you John Doolittle. Enjoy. Well, John, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you to Alex Racy for connecting us. And secondly, welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Hey, James, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's an honor to be here. And uh, hopefully we uh, will get into some good Alex Racy stories too. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Oh, man, I'm in uh, my home office. Uh, St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, when I got out of the Navy, this is uh, where my wife and I decided to stay. And uh, so, yeah, we've God, we've been here for like nine years now, which, uh, yeah, St. Pete, Florida. Beautiful. How about you? Um, so I'm in Ocala, so I'm just two hours away from you at the moment. Oh, yeah. Okay. A little less so ocean around me, though. Get together and have a coffee or lunch or something. Absolutely. Absolutely. On the back end of 7X, I'll, I'll come down to you, definitely. Nice. All right. Well, I would love to start at the very beginning chronologically. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Okay. Well, I'm from, uh, I guess technically I'm from Texas. My dad was Air Force. I was born at Lackland Air Force Base in Texas, uh, Wilford Hall. Uh, about two weeks later, my mom and dad uh, threw me in the back of the VW Bug and drove across uh, across Texas and uh, into California. And I spent majority of my life in California. My um, 
my dad worked for uh, Pacific Telephone, later became Southwest Bell. Um, then my uh, sister and I, we uh, went to high school and we were swimmers. And that was in the uh, 80s. And uh, so, yeah, born born Texas, but raised in California and uh, ended up going into the military. But that's a whole uh, another story. Yeah, beautiful. Well, I want to start in, you know, stay in that childhood for a while. So correct me uh, if I'm wrong. Your dad was a Vietnam vet. Yeah, he uh, he was in the Air Force uh, during Vietnam. He, he was an air traffic controller and um, worked on an island almost exactly in between Okinawa and Vietnam and helped uh, uh, guide tankers and bombers in, in country there and lived on this little tiny island. Uh, he was a dead OIC out there and um, was active duty for a while, uh, came home from that pretty long deployment, decided to get out of the Air Force and almost immediately uh, decided he missed it and wanted to get back in. And as as you well know, after Vietnam with the uh, with the drawdowns, it's almost impossible to get back in. But he missed the camaraderie. He missed the fellowship, the the the, the team aspect, and uh, he he didn't really enjoy the business world initially. Uh, so he tried getting back in over and over and kept getting shut down, shut down. And eventually they let him back in in the reserves. And that's what he did um, for the next 30 or so years. He was in the Air Force Reserves. He had a day job in San Francisco and San Jose. Uh, so, you know, we were, we were a Bay Area family. Uh, and my mom uh, worked for uh, Mare Island for, and then for the Port of Oakland, kind of on the Navy side. And, um, but yeah, my, my, uh, it's funny, my dad, uh, uh, he, he was Air Force, but he never really pushed for me to go into the, the military, which I thought was interesting. So we're going to get later in your timeline working with, um, you know, vet veterans that are transitioning out and it's known now it's it's a struggle whether it's in the military or first responder professions but the vietnam veterans have had on the show it's one thing if you came home to some sort of thank you for your service mentality that particular era a lot of these men and women returned to to almost hatred from the people that they were supposedly fighting for what was your dad's transition like and what was his kind of homecoming like if you've ever had that conversation with him well, his his homecoming. Uh, you know, he never he never talked about experiencing uh, some of the things that you um, talk about. You know, that 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 kind of vitriol, that hatred being spit on, and that I'm not saying it didn't happen, but he's never brought it up. And honestly, I've never asked about it. Um, but I will I will definitely talk with him about it. But. Um, you know, he he came back from that time and then he just kind of went right into industry and into business, got out and started. It was like that chapter of his life was over and he started something new. And it wasn't until he was well into that chapter that he realized he missed the brotherhood. Yeah, which I think a lot of people do. I, I, mean, I don't know if you've witnessed this, but one of the things that, 
in my kind of white belt perspective has is if you transition out, but that purpose is still embedded in what you're doing next. So for example, you come out, you, you know, you were in the military, you become a first responder or you were a first responder. Now you're in a nonprofit or, you know, working with special needs people or something that's still giving, something that's still making the world better. That's where I see uh, not a seamless transition, but when people realize, okay, I have tribe, I have purpose, I have, you know, this thing that I had in the military or in, in fire is still existing in this new space. And where I see people struggle is they become a realtor or an investment banker. And in the heart of them, they, they're like, okay, this isn't, this doesn't feel like it's truly making the world better. It's making people money. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more, man. I, I, um, I feel very fortunate that I fell into uh, the work that I'm in now, and we can talk about that later. Um, but I, I agree when you're talking about first responders, fire, police, EMT, um, when you're talking about DOD, when you're talking about just a, a life of service and being part of something bigger um, than yourself, it's very hard once you leave um, that team to find that um, to find that elsewhere. It's very difficult. And I think a lot of guys struggle with it. Um, yeah, I, 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 I agree with you. And especially on the, um, the first responder piece, like, uh, the, 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 um, I've talked with, uh, the chief of police here in St. Pete, Anthony Holloway, great guy, great guy. But it's, it's crazy when you think about our, our, community police forces across the country and when those guys walk out the door every morning it's like they uh they are deploying every single day and it's a very different perspective for a military guy you know before 9-11 we were 18 months of workup six month deployment then after 9-11 it was six months of workup and six months deployment but no matter how busy it got, you always had home time. And when you were home, you were, you were home. You didn't, you didn't have to deal with um, all the things you were dealing with on deployment. And then I look at a police officer or a firefighter and these guys, when they walk out, they, they're, they're, they're kind of deploying every day. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Well, the big thing that the military guests have said, as far as the trauma as well like we saw maybe had to do some horrible things but the the landscape is in iraq afghanistan vietnam when we came home what i think a lot of people don't understand especially in the volunteer fire service is some of these men and women live in these very communities so they run on their friends their their kids teachers you know and then every time because i always worked at least out of the city where i was a firefighter so i didn't see it all the time but i have observed it you know if i go to orlando so many intersections okay that was where you know these three people were killed that was that house fire where the guy came out on fire and you know these are definitely vivid remembers excuse me memories but the military have those memories overseas more often than not but as you said police fire ems those are in the very towns that they work every day every third day or in some cases where they actually live and think about that for a second that, you know, we, we, we talk about triggers for, for, for military guys that are dealing with behavioral health uh, things and 
uh, hypervigilance, PTSD, and what have you. But it's usually triggers that are not necessarily at every turn in everyday life. The triggers you're talking about, <laughs> you see them every day. So, um, you know, I I appreciate the um, the outpouring of support that our military has. Uh, I really, really do. I thank God that we uh, uh, we're not dealing with the stuff. Uh, our, our Vietnam era parents were dealing with as far as a support from the community and, and whatnot. Um, but I think our, our, our first responders in many ways have it actually harder. Yeah. I mean, certainly as bad in a different way. I mean, hundred percent. Yeah. Well, yeah. back to your early life then. Um, I know you ended up becoming an elite swimmer in college. Was that something that you got into when you were young or were there other sports involved as well? <laughs> uh, so, uh, I thought I was going to be a basketball player. Um, sorry for the background noise. I guess somebody's mowing the lawn, but, uh, I, my freshman year, I had a, uh, I, I came down on my ankle and I tore the growth plate and it was a mess. And, uh, and they told me, Hey, you, 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 you can't play basketball anymore. And Oh, by the way, you'll probably never run again. If you want to be active, you're going to have to find something that's non- uh, load bearing. And, uh, I was a kind of high school, middle school, summer league swimmer. And, uh, that's, that's kind of what I knew. And so I started swimming and come to find out, um, swimming is actually one of the best rehabs you can do when you have that kind of injury on your lower leg and your ankle. So, uh, long story longer, I just, uh, start swimming all the time through high school that that became my sport um i wasn't great in high school but i was good enough to get uh kind of get noticed by some colleges and whatnot and it helped me uh it helped me get into school yeah when you were in the high school era still before you you chose a specific college were you thinking of the military at that point or were there other things on your mind <laughs> oh, you had to go there, Dave. You're gonna call <laughs> me out. You're gonna call me out on being one of those guys, the the Top Gun generation. <laughs> but I was, man. I freaking loved that move. I don't know what it was, but I, I, that was the that was the best recruiting tool the the Navy ever did, man. Because here I am. God, I don't know. I guess I was a sophomore, junior in high school. I don't know when when it come out. Like 86, 86, 87. But when that movie came out, hook, line, and sinker, man. I wanted to go to Naval Academy. I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to be Goose or Maverick or whatever. And uh, that's the direction I started going. Yeah, it, it all it all kind of started with Top Gun. That and the fact that a guy, a friend of mine that I swam with, went uh, went to one of the service academies. And um that's when I really started considering the military. Not when I was younger, because my dad was reserves. So he would come home from work like everybody else's dad. And then occasionally he would just kind of disappear for a weekend, do his thing and come back. I rarely, if ever, saw him um, in uniform. And uh, so, yeah, I blame I blame it on Top Gun. 
It's funny. I just took my son to see the the new Top Gun, um, and he had the same exact reaction. So it was kind of cool to see from a fresh set of eyes. I remember seeing that when I was probably exactly his age, and now he's like, oh, yeah, because he's already in the ROTC program, JROTC, um, and he, you know, it, it's like that's one of the things you could potentially do, like put that in your little toolbox. Um, but it's you, how old is he, James? He is fifteen. So oh yeah, see that that that's the age. That's when they grab him. Yep, exactly. So, so I mean, he was, you know, he's all in on, on a multitude of things. He got into track and cross country. He's in the JROTC program. And I'm just sitting back going, let these other mentors help guide my child. I'm here as a parent, but I think it's so important to have the humility to be, to step back and go, all right, I'm not an expert in the military. I'm not an elite, you know, collegiate or high school coach. So it's so cool just to watch his growth and then maybe, you know, nudge him a little bit. Some of the strength and conditioning um, that he's being told. I'm like, well, let's, let's talk about this particular thing. Yeah, maybe, you know, maybe life doesn't revolve around bench press, but, you know, can <sighs> put him back on track. But it is. It's, it's incredible just to see the potential because I think this is something that's lost. It was, it was very absent in my upbringing in my school, but I see it now as well. I don't know how it was when you were younger, but my parents really instilled that you can be anything mentality and my school you know some teachers in my school told me you can't be anything you're you're a piece of shit which is not the best way to teach but i love that that you know put that belief back in kids minds like if you work at it if you take it seriously if you have a burning desire you literally can be anything you want to be and even if you're an amputee or whatever you can find a a version of that and chase that as well I agree. I, I agree. And, and and you touched on something there that I think is so important to talk with uh, uh, young people about today. And that's the mentor aspect. And I mean, don't get me wrong. My, my dad was, of course, my, you know, my number one mentor and hero growing up. But I think it's important to have mentors as, as a kid outside the family. And, um, to help give different perspective. I mean, that that's what your that's what your son's experiencing right now at, at 15. Our youngest kid is uh, is Meg. She's 15. And um, you know, my my mentor growing up was <laughs> I, I never get it on a podcast and not mention Mike Troy. So guy was a 1960 uh gold medalist in the Rome Olympics. He was a swimmer. And held the world record in the 200 meter fly. Um, comes out of the Olympics, you know, cover Sports Illustrated. I'm looking at a picture of him right now. Um, he comes out of the Olympics, joins the Navy, goes through a commissioning program, goes into the teams, into the SEAL teams, does three tours in Vietnam, comes home from that, becomes an instructor at Bud's. And then realizes that the world of uh, kind of uh, uh, mid-grade staff officer work is not for him. Uh, Gets out of the Navy and starts coaching. He started the swim team down on the Strand in Coronado. And he eventually moved north. And he was my coach uh, growing up, my swim coach. And... um, and he was a mentor for me in so many, so many different ways. And I feel like he, between my my parents and my grandparents, of course, but in so many ways, he also guided where my my life went. And I feel like uh, that's an important aspect uh, for young people today. And a lot of people don't have it. I, 
I was just giving a talk to uh, ROTC unit at UCF uh, day before yesterday, University of Central Florida. And I asked, so this is all the sophomore Air Force ROTC students. And, uh, and I asked, how many people have a non-family mentor in their life? Less than a third of the hands went up. And that's, that's something that's missing today in a lot of ways, in my opinion. Absolutely. Well, two things. Firstly, after hearing you talk about Mike on the uh, Kill Cliff podcast, oh, I was yeah. like, oh, that's someone I need to try and get on the show. And then when I did my research, I know you lost him in 2019. So yeah, I'm sorry to hear yeah. that, but he, he would have been an amazing person to have on here as well. But with He the- has influenced so many people, so many people. And he came out of the swimming world and decided that what a, a, a friend of his lost a kid in a drowning accident. And so he shifted his whole effort in life to teaching young kids how to swim, to help with the drowning epidemic, specifically in, at that time in the uh, state of Arizona. And uh, just, just an amazing, amazing, uh, amazing man. Well, with that mentorship element, the other you know flipping it around we talked about you know you my son receiving mentorship and mine was the uh, martial arts coaches and my pe teacher who i'm actually going to get on my high school pe teacher i'm going to get him on the podcast oh nice so those were my out of family mentors but when i look at what i would describe as the problem today and this goes all the way up sadly to the you know the commanders in chief that we've had the last few years plural left and right you know, that are acting like petulant children rather than leaders. We have such a divisive element to the media, to, you know, the COVID epidemic, all these things, and it's driven wedges into friendships and families. And therefore, people are quick to criticize. And my thing is this, you know, to make sure your family is good to take care of your home, but then step outside your front door and find a way to mentor. You may be a computer programmer or a chess you know, chess guru or uh, one of my friends, Chris, started a firefighter mentorship program. So they removed the barrier to entry as far as um, uh, socioeconomic background to find the best young men and women to become great firefighters and give them all the tools to be successful. That is one thing I don't hear from the ground all the way up to the White House is where is people, where is that conversation of saying, look, think of like a village again you know it takes a village to raise so what can you offer your community stop tweeting and you know throwing hate on social media and instead look at yourself and go what am i good at which group of people can i positively affect if all of us did that we would raise this entire nation back up i yeah that that would be that would be incredible there and there's other ways that we could kind of foster that but um you ever been to israel not yet no it's interesting that uh the vast majority of uh, uh young people in israel they they have to serve and they don't all have to go in the military there's other ways that they can serve but i just i i look at that model and when you're walking around the, the the streets of Tel Aviv, just about everybody has served that country in in some way, shape, or form. And um, you know, of course, we don't have that here. But can you imagine if everybody was mandated? And not, I don't mean just military. 
What about uh, you know USAID, Peace Corps, um, you know volunteer fire, police? What what if every young person had to spend a year of their life doing some kind of service? It would change so much, and it the mentorship piece that you're talking about, it would just naturally be fallout from from that, in my opinion. Um, yeah, I agree. I agree completely. Sebastian Jung has been on here a couple of times and he wrote about that in Tribe. You know, it does, and there's that yes. very concept. It doesn't have to be military service. I just had one of my guests recently was in AmeriCorps and that was a huge shift mm-hmm. in his own, you know, his own life path. So, yeah, it doesn't, you know, whether it's, like you said, mentorship or helping with youth sports or environmental projects in your city, whatever it is, I agree 100% selfless service unpaid service for a year when you're young enough to still hopefully be at home with your parents or like you said military service where you're at a base that would just reset i think the damage that i would say probably was done in the 80s where it became super consumerism and that whole yuppie mentality where success was measured in wealth rather than Hmm. service yeah the yuppie mentality i like that (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of education, um, you wanted to be a Top Gun pilot. Talk to me about your journey into Air Force education and then the transition out into the Navy. Uh, Well, I tried to go to the Naval Academy and they shot me down. First of all, my grades sucked. Um, I, I barely had the absolute minimum to even apply to a service academy. Uh, Naval Academy guys just laughed me out the door. Um, Air Force Academy, on the other hand, uh, they needed a swimmer that specialized in the 200 IM, 200 breast. You know, that those were my events, breast IM, fly, mid-distance. And um, so they said, well, go ahead and uh, 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 submit it, but, you know, we'll, we'll – We'll make you what they call a blue chip athlete, um, which helps move you up in the pile a little bit. But still, my grades were just the bare, bare minimum. So it didn't didn't look good. So I applied to other uh, schools. My grandfather was a Jayhawk. He uh, went to University of Kansas. And uh, Gary Kemp paid for me to come out and did a, a great uh, uh, you know athlete tour there. And uh, that that's where I was going to go. I was going to swim, uh, be at, at Kansas, be a Jayhawk. And the very last possible day that they could have notified us, um, I was out with friends, got a phone call at the house. And uh, my mom got in touch with me. Is like, hey, you got to get home and call this guy from the Air Force Academy. I was like, what? I'd already committed to Kansas at this time. It was a done deal. I was going to school there. And uh, so I called the guy and yeah, I I got in by the skin of my teeth. Um, had to call Gary Kemp back, tail between my legs. But he understood, you know, hey, go, go, go do good things. Serve your country, serve your nation. Uh, it's awesome, John. I support that 100%. So I ended up going there. Um I I struggled big time at the Air Force Academy. Because remember, my even though my dad was uh reserve Air Force, we never we weren't a military family. I didn't know the first thing about going in the military. There was no pre-visit to the academy. 
uh, to see if it was a good fit, to see if it was something I wanted. It was just put the application in, the odds are I'm not getting in, and I would go and do something else. So I ended up getting in. I flew out there as a freshman and just uh, struggled. <laughs> I mean, I, I was a California surfer, skater, swimmer. Hair was all bleached, long hair. And I show up at that place. It's kind of a funny story. Um, and so we're all on the bus and uh, we're all coking a joke because this whole bus, uh, we, 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 a bunch of us are from Northern California. It was like a California crew on the bus. So we show up, I'm sitting up near the front and the guy gets on the bus, uh, one of the upperclassmen, uh, cadre, as soon as we show up at the academy and he starts screaming at us, just yelling at us. And the guy came up to like here on me and it, for, for your listeners, I have my hand like, right, like at my chest. And I look at this guy, I'm like, Hey dude, relax. We're all right here. We can hear you. And how's, he says, how'd that go did, down? <laughs> did, did you, yeah. Did, did you just call me dude? And that <laughs> was the beginning of my hell for four years at the Air Force Academy. It was, uh, I, I struggled academically. I was on academic probation six of the eight semesters. Uh, they had this thing called MPA, your military performance average. Uh, that was rock bottom as well. And um, so anyway, our junior year, they came out and told us um, that if you were not in the top third of your class, you were not going to UPT undergraduate pilot training. So I was like, well, shit, I'm, I'm definitely not in the top third. I'm not even in the top two thirds. I'm like in the bottom 2%. So, uh, so I call Mike, my mentor, right? They said, Hey, Mike, what, what, what do you, what do you think? I mean, I'm, I'm not sure what I'm going to do in the air force. I can't fly. So my grades are in the tank and without skipping a beat in true Mike Troy fashion, he said, uh, John, get out of the air force, join Navy, go into SEAL teams. And I'm like, Mike, um, hey, I, 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 I'm at the air force Academy. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> the Naval guy. I'm at the air force Academy. And he's like, Oh, I don't know. I've heard some guys doing it. Talk to some people. I, I'm pretty sure you can do it. Just look into it. And turns out he was right uh, with Title 10 authorities and all that. Um, if you go to a service academy, um, technically you can serve in any of the um, uh, sister services and armed, armed forces. Um, so after a bunch of paperwork and uh, meeting the liaison officer that the Air Force Academy had, um, I ended up uh, uh, graduating Um and on the same day I graduated from the Air Force Academy, I uh, put on choker whites and got commissioned as an ensign in the Navy and uh, started my Navy career, 27 May, 1992. So walk me through your journey into EOD. <laughs> well, the, the the pipeline, so they initially gave me orders to uh, BUDS, class 186. Once the Navy realized that they had four 
Air Force Academy of grads going <laughs> into class 186, they immediately cut two right off the top. And I was one of the two. So they put me in um, the EOD pipeline of training, which meant uh, go to San Diego for surface, for ship driving school, surface warfare officer school, uh, learn how the power plant works on on uh, diesel ships, then go to hard hat diving school, uh, then go to salvage school. And this was the pipeline of training to ultimately go to explosive ordnance disposal EOD. Um, but I never, I never made it to EOD because once I got to the ship, uh, I just started applying to go to BUDS. And every time I applied, uh, I got shot down over and over again. So it ended up being six times I got denied uh, to go to BUDS, this SEAL training, you know, basic underwater demolition school. And uh, <laughs> it's a whole nother story how it actually happened. But finally, uh, they, they they said, yeah, okay, let, let the lieutenant go to BUDS. So I had been in the Navy at that point for almost four years trying to get the BUDS. Um, so I ended up going uh, with class 213. So it was going to be 186. I ended up finally getting there in class 213. Uh, mm-hmm. Was the officer for uh, the, the OIC, the officer in charge for class 213. Uh, made it there, made it through there. And there's all kinds of rabbit holes on that. But um, then ended up going to uh, SEAL Team 2 after after BUDS. So on this journey toward EOD, um, I heard you, it sounded like you really enjoyed that experience. I was a straight C student in high school, in university, but the moment I found fire and paramedicine, I was a straight A student because it made sense to me. It was hands-on. It was real world. What was your experience? Was the Air Force Academy very academic? And did you find yourself becoming a good student once it was a skill set that actually made sense to you? (laughs) Such a loaded question. I can tell you this. (laughs) I can tell you listen to that kill clip. So, um, (laughs) because there's there's a message to pull from that. If you're not doing well academically, doesn't mean you're a turd. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So funny story. Um, our, our life is, is a series of sea stories. Um, so I show up at, first of all, I, 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 I graduated. I was near to, I wasn't the last guy. Um, and it was hard to find out, but I think I was like eight graduates from the bottom in, in, uh, 1992 from, uh, the graduating class at the Air Force Academy. So then I go into Navy. I go to SWAS school in San Diego, Surface Warfare Officer School. And that is where you go to learn to drive ships. So I'm getting at your question, but it's just a roundabout way. And uh, the first test we had, um, I got like a D. So I had to retake it. No bit, no biggie. Didn't raise too many red flags. Um the next test, uh, I completely bombed. I failed it. And the thing is, it, 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 it's, it was a class in something called maneuvering boards, mo boards. And everybody that comes out of the Naval Academy can do that shit with their eyes closed. It, mo boards, they just laugh at it. It's no big deal. 
well, I've never seen this stuff before in my life. And the class I was in at SWAS was a Naval Academy um, class. So I failed that test. So the next morning I get called down to the commanding officer's office. And I was uh, going to dive track. I was going to go be a diver, salvage diver, EOD and all that. And uh, I wish I could remember the commanding officer's name, but man, the guy just starts screaming at me. He's like, you think you don't have to put out, you think you walk on water, you Naval Academy grads, you don't think you have to do any of this shit and we just have to blah, blah, blah. And I let him yell at me for a while. And I said, hey, um, sir, I, I, I went to the Air Force Academy. He's like, I know you're an Academy grad. You're a P. What? <laughs> Did you say Air Force Academy? <laughs> he had no idea, man. And he just starts howling, Mass Chief Academy, Doolittle's an Air Force again. And he's laughing. All the instructors <laughs> are laughing. Guys had no idea. And um, so, no. The Navy was not easy for me either. But what I found is once I finally <laughs> got to Bud's, um, academically, um, it, 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 it wasn't that hard. And something about when you, you surround yourself with a lot of like-minded individuals, um, everything just seemed easier. I mean, I, I know physically it, it, it's difficult. I know mentally it's difficult, especially Hell Week and all that. You hear those stories all the time. Mm -hmm. But being surrounded by teammates who were uh, similar mindset, all goal-oriented, goal all type alphas, all going after the same freaking thing – I tell guys all the time, the most fun uh, I've had since I, in all my military time was at Bud's. The, the, the friends I made there, I can call any one of them today and they give me a shirt off their back, fly out and help me if I was in trouble and vice versa, any one of them. Um, and that uh, I had never experienced that, you know, and my, my nose was in the books and the, at the academy and I could barely pass anything. I struggled with SWAS. When Navy guys are going to hear this and they're just going to roll their eyes like, oh my God, somebody that struggled with SWAS, what a turd. <laughs> but uh, I, I, you know, and then I went, um, you know, after I went, I worked on a salvage boat, the USS Safeguard. I was on there for almost three years. Um, hard work. Um, but it wasn't what I came in the Navy to do. And there's something about, um, you know, when you're doing something that isn't really what you want to do, it, it's not, it's not as easy. It's more difficult. And then I got the buds and man, it was like everything started firing on all cylinders. I really, uh, I enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> then I showed up as a new guy at SEAL team two and, uh, you know, it was like, oh, okay, great. You you graduate from buds. That doesn't mean anything. Getting back in the line and shut up and learn and absorb and be a new guy for a while, be, you know, probation status and all that. Uh, but God, man, I learned so much as a new guy in, in the teams. And uh, I have the greatest uh, respect for guys in that line of work that take new guys under their wing and uh, help them succeed. Mentorship again mentorship 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 yeah so you were a around very, very special kind of mentorship when you <laughs> the team, by the way painful mentorship <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so you were around you were part of several teams as you're progressing through this in in the Air Force Academy in the the journey to EOD when you look back was the was there an element for the the creation of such tight bonds that shared suffering oh yeah when when you and i think this applies to i i i think just about anybody that works in the first responder world get, gets it right and i think this is that 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 i you as a firefighter, I would imagine you've met very few military guys that you don't automatically kind of bond with on some level. Same with police officers, same with EMT. It just something about with the initial training that we all go, and I know it's different throughout the you know different organizations, but that initial training is designed to be hard physically and psychologically. And when you go through that kind of shared suffering together, you build a, a bond that is incredibly, incredibly powerful. I, I agree with that hundred percent. So that's one of my observations is because life is so comfortable now and, you know, we're all very, very, well, I'd like to think we're grateful for air conditioning and cars and, you know, MP3 players or, you know, even, you know, phones now. But I think the, the, dark side of that is the more comfortable we are the less we suffer i feel that's also the kind of opposition to tribalism as well and many of us that are listening to this are fortunate enough to have gone through crucibles in police and fire and military that bonded us that gave us this incredible brother and sisterhood but the average person out there hasn't had that so if they're not in a crossfit gym or a jiu-jitsu school or you know whatever environment they may be exposed to this suffering go rock community then you know this i think is why we don't have as tight tribalism as maybe you know a village 200 years ago where they were chopping wood and hunting and gathering and doing things that were hard and cold and hot that was bringing them together because the purpose was to protect their village keep them warm and keep their tummies full yeah yeah, you you just touched on something though with jujitsu, uh, Krav Maga, judo, karate, CrossFit gyms, finding things in life that are not comfortable. Uh, I'm not saying pursuing misery necessarily, but finding a way to uh, have some shared uh, suffering in a group setting. In a team setting, because uh, you know you might not go into the Marine Corps and, and and go through the actual crucible, but there's all kinds of things in life that you can uh, sort of create that scenario. Um, I agree with you. I think it's really um, important that you put yourself through some some hard times, even if it means. Taking off uh, by yourself and going on a hike in in the mountains with just a couple things in your backpack. I mean, finding finding tough things to do and doing them, um, and getting away from all the the air conditioning and the Wi Fi and the DVR and the, the HD. I mean, all that stuff that we're just you know surrounded by uh, now. Absolutely, yeah, that's that's a good point, James. Well. 
something that really resonated with me when you were told in you know your your youth that you had this ankle injury you could never run jump etc i'm assuming there was running and jumping in buds and you know the the programs after so talk to me about that you know there's so many people that the reason i didn't become a firefighter for, for a long time is because someone in a white coat when I was in high school, told me you're colorblind, you can never be a pilot, firefighter, and they listed off all the cool things that I wanted to be, and I was left with, you know, like, badger tamer and pizza maker. Um, so Badger tamer. <laughs> so they really limited my, again, wasn't exactly shoot for the stars mentality then. You were told to the point where, you know, had you dreamed of becoming a SEAL, maybe you would have written that off at that point. Talk to me about, you know, the that previous injury, the rehab part of your swimming and how that held up during your buds training? It, it, it all came back to Mike, uh, to, to, to Mike Troy. And, and he used to tell stories at the beginning of workouts, especially the Saturday morning workouts. Cause those were the ones where he had us for like three hours and they'd be these 10,000 yard workouts. And he'd always talk to us ahead of time and tell, and tell stories. And, in general, his stories always encapsulated the aspect of the mind, what what you can think through, what you conceive, what you can imagine doing, you can, your, your body will follow. And he used to tell us stories all the time, mostly about buds, just about how the Physically, you think your body is at the very end, but you can always take it another step. So that emotional perspective, that psychological perspective of achieving goals, um, he would just drill that into us. And when I told him that I couldn't run anymore, he's like, oh, that's bullshit. Get in the pool. You'll be running in no time. This is this is the best rehab you can do. <laughs> And he, and he was right, man. And, and it wasn't that swimming was necessarily good rehab or whatever. It's just that mindset of what you said when somebody in a white coat says, hey, you'll never be able to do this. Maybe they might be right. But more often than not, I think they're maybe not right. Um, yeah, there's all, all kinds of angles we could go um, with that. But in my case... I uh, I had to get three different medical waivers during my time, my early time in the military. I had to get a waiver to even come in the military. And uh, I had to get a waiver to go to BUDS. I had to get a waiver to go to the Air Force Academy. I had to get a flight waiver. I had um, back stuff going on. I had my ankle, which was completely disqualifying for military service. And Mike used to say all the time, hey, Every military instruction that's out there has what they call an exception to policy. And if you're told you can't do something, eventually you will get high enough in the organization. You will find somebody that will sign an exception to policy. So no matter what you're told, never give up on what it is you want to do. Anything is achievable. Um, especially in the military, because there's all kinds of instructions and rules and regulations. But, you know, you have a one star, two star, you, you, you have somebody that wants you bad enough and they'll sign the paperwork and get get you in. And that isn't always the case. I mean, obviously, colorblind, let's say for being a pilot. OK, that's a non-starter. 
but my medical stuff was, uh, I was still fully functional. It's just that I was disqualified per some instructions. So, um, yeah, where there, where there's a will, there's almost always a way, I, I think. Yeah, well, with mine, it wasn't, it, I wasn't colorblind. I was color deficient. But those books that they give you, it's like, you know, pass or fail. Well, there's, you know, at pages and pages and pages. Some of them I can see the numbers. So what it was was a red-green deficiency. So I can see traffic lights just fine. I, I would argue I could probably challenge and, you know, go the pilot route had I been, you know, on that path when I was young. So I've been questioning what you're told and finding okay is there a way around it i think i think it was remy adelaki i think who mm. was a seal i think if yep. i got this right he actually had a, a blip in his past as far as from the criminal side and he had to get that addressed before he went in if i've got the right person um but yeah so yeah, even i think that, that was remy yeah. i think you're right yeah. yeah so there we go another thing so i think it's just important so many of us look at someone who's you know a figure of authority and it, well they told me this so therefore it's gospel well, if that's derailing your life's dream, take a step back, get a second opinion, and then find someone that, that circumnavigated and ask them how they did it. Yeah, there's almost uh, there's there's almost always a way, you know. I like uh, I like I like talking to those uh, kind of that that senior in high school or. Uh, even in college, I love talking the guys in that age bracket, that kind of 18 to 24 range, uh, because they're told so much crap these days about what they can't do with their life. And uh, it just it just takes the wind right out of their sails. And so much of it's bullshit. Absolutely. Well, you make it through buds, you're attached to SEAL Team 2. I'm always curious for the the uh, operators that were pre nine eleven, and then obviously mm. the, the the career span post nine eleven as well. So, in the fire service, I think we have the very best departments truly are training for what if scenarios. The very worst departments, of which I worked my very last one, um, if it hasn't happened, it's never going to happen. The worst fucking you know mindset you can have. So, what was the what was the training like pre nine eleven, and then you know, if you want, kind of walk me through your 9-11 experience and then how everything shifted from there. Um, okay, well, that's, that's on the surface, that's pretty easy. Uh, in the teams, and this is kind of a very broad statement, um, not uh, 100% of the time for 100% of the organization, but for the most part, leading up to 9-11, you had an 18-month workup and that would be your leave, your professional development, your your unilateral training, your team training, all your training, leave, personal time, everything. You had like a year and a half, and then you would go on a deployment. And the deployments were uh, six months long. So kind of a two-year cycle. Um, when 9-11 happened, uh, again, very broad statement. There were exceptions, but for the most part, that 18 month long, call it pre-deployment training, shrunk significantly to about six months. So now think of taking all your personal time, all your professional development time, 
a lot of that just had to go away because you had to focus on the platoon team training to get out the door. And a lot of that training had to be away from home station. So now instead, so now instead of being home for 18, you're home for six, but you're really not home for six because a lot of that training, you're gone, you're you're away from home. And now the deployments are not your typical uh, joint training environment. Your deployments in many cases now are combat deployments. So you go from a two-year cycle to a one-year cycle, and it's a combat cycle, and you're barely home at all during that 12 months. Um, Very, very difficult. difficult on the force. And you mentioned Alex earlier, we've had this conversation many times, Alex and I, um, anybody in, uh, in my case, in the SEAL teams, just about anybody could handle that a few times. But what we started seeing when I say that, I mean a one year cycle versus a two year cycle. Um, but what started happening pretty quickly is uh, the 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 wheels started to kind of come off the bus a little bit. We saw alcohol-related incidents go up. We saw spousal abuse, child abuse, um, um, uh, suicide ideology, or uh, uh, what's it called when you uh, think about suicide? What's uh, that ideation. Ideation, thank you, not uh, ideations. Uh, actual uh, suicides on both active duty members and family members, um, all these markers just started going up and we can talk about that more later, but essentially that to me, that was the biggest change from pre nine 11 to post nine 11. Um, and when you pre before nine 11, when you would come home, you'd have all this time, uh, to decompress, you know, you take care of all the immediate stuff at the team right away. Then everybody went off on leave and everybody approached leave differently, but it essentially was kind of a forced decompression for the guys. Um, a lot of that went away and, um, you can imagine the second and third order effects of taking that decompressed time away, um, from somebody. Um, you asked where, uh, where I was, I was on a Kosovo deployment, uh, when nine 11 happened, we were at camp bond steel, uh, in Kosovo. It's kind of Southern portion of Kosovo soon after president, president, uh, Bush 43 had come out for a visit. That was a, a high point in that deployment. That was great. Cause we provided his, uh, uh, counter assault team, his counter sniper team. We worked with the Secret Service. Great, great opportunity. Great, uh, just great uh, part of that deployment. We were doing a lot of reconnaissance along the uh, Albanian-Serbian uh, borders, uh, that kind of stuff. You know, uh, confirm and de- or deny different things that were happening at at border regions. Um, we had come back from one of those missions. Uh, we had been gone for three days, uh, not much sleep uh, during those three days. So everybody was kind of crashed out. I was asleep and uh, I'll never forget. I, I won't use his real name, but uh, uh, Tiny comes comes in, barging into my uh, my hooch. 
And, uh, and I didn't hear him come in and apparently he was yelling, he was yelling at me and I didn't hear anything. I was just out cold. I was exhausted. So he picks up the head of my bed, like three feet off the ground and drops it. Boom. What the fuck? And he's like, sir, get the fuck up. We're going to war. And he runs out. And I was like, what the hell is he talking about? And uh, so I went into the talk, the uh, tactical operations there. And, and, and uh, it was like everybody else was already up. I was like the last one to know. And I walk in and they have uh, AFN Armed Forces Network playing. And uh, there's a delay. It's a shitty picture. It's all grainy. And when I walked in, it was the CNN feed. I'll never forget it. Uh, I, I had no idea what was going on. I mean, everybody was chattering, chattering. And then it got deathly quiet in the room. And I saw the second plane go through the, um, the second tower. And uh, yeah, that, that was... That was the 9-11 moment for me. And then, of course, after that, everything, everything changed. Just going back to your point about the compression of your deployment and training, that I think is what's happening in the first responder professions now. This county that I live in, we just had our second firefighter suicide in three weeks. Another young, fit, healthy young man with a family and two two kids. Um, and... This department, they're working 56 hours a week and they're short-staffed like so many you know, law enforcement agencies are too and dispatch centers as well. And so more often than not, they're told, right, you can't go home tomorrow. So now that's an 80-hour work week that these men and women are working. And we're seeing the same exact thing that you described you know, as from 20 years ago onwards in the first responder professions today because they're cutting staff, they're shutting down fire stations. But who does it fall on? the people in the uniform so it, it just breaks you said my heart. 80 hours 80 hours the a week. typical work week now yeah so the typical one is 56 which is insane in itself because the people making those decisions are in an office working 40 the people that you're going to wake up at three in the morning ask to drive emergency to a burning building go search pull someone out and then do paramedic interventions you're fine with them working 56 hours a week, being awake every third day. But then what happens, and I experienced this for a majority of my career, you get to 7 a.m., maybe it's your kid's birthday that day, maybe it's Christmas Day or you know whatever, and you're told, no, we don't have enough people, you've got to stay for another 24 hours. So that's, as you said, about three days with no sleep. The number of people that are working two, three days with no sleep that are behind the wheel of these emergency vehicles that are weaving through traffic you know, it's it's pure, pure insanity. So we've seen that compression, but there's no real voice out there. I mean, I'm trying to bring all these experts on through this particular medium, but as far as our union or, you know, any of the, the big wigs in our profession, no one is saying we're killing our people, but we're killing our people. Ooh, brother, man, that's uh that's rough. 80 hours in that line of work. Um, you know, it's kind of the same conversation, right? It's the, the, the guys are resilient, right? They, they can handle that once, twice, maybe three times, but you make that week after week. And this gets into a whole nother topic, but man, I, I don't care how resilient 
you are, or you think you are, how resilient you think your teammate is. Everybody's got a freaking breaking point. Everybody's got a breaking point. And um, <laughs> it, it's, uh, it, it's, it's almost criminal that that's happening. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I know that um, the first SEAL that was killed post 9-11 was someone near and dear to you. So I'm not extremely familiar with the story. So I'd love you know, for you to share Neil's story with everyone listening. And obviously, we'll get to why that became the nucleus of something else that you did as well. Uh, yeah, okay. Um, so Fifi or uh, Neil Roberts, uh, when I showed up at Team 2 and I was a brand new guy, I'm in my khakis, railroad track, lieutenant, walking in to SEAL Team 2. Uh, I walk across the quarterdeck, and there's uh, three people standing there. And one of them was Neil, pay officer, second class, E5, pay officer, second class, Neil Roberts. And uh, they proceeded to uh, take care of me as the newest officer <laughs> at the team. No, seriously, they took great care of me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah one of the first guys i met at, at the team and then um jumped forward and he went to one of uh our national mission force units um and after 9 11 the first uh seal to fall in combat uh was uh neil Tucker gar uh guys call it roberts ridge now and a lot of things happen there um a lot of good things happen there's a lot of stories of hero heroism that uh came out of that event um but we lost some good people and neil was uh one of them um that was my first that was the first guy that i knew really well um that had died uh, not not just post 9-11, not just the combat scenario, but uh, uh, that, that, that was the first like friend that um, my first experience with uh, death, which, you know, all my grandparents, uh, you know, they, they lived pretty, pretty late. Both my parents still still alive. But at that point, that was my first like memorial ceremony. Uh, uh, celebration of life, you know, all that stuff. Um, so anyway, um, jump forward from when Neil uh, died. And I was at the um, Naval Postgraduate Schools early uh, 2004. And uh, I was struggling in that scenario. First of all, I was struggling academically, of course, because I suck at school. But um I was really having a hard time with the fact that I was in a school environment and a lot of my teammates and friends were overseas doing, uh, doing what, what, what seals do. Right. Um, so I called Mike back to the mentor and, uh, I said, Mike, um, I, I I have a lot of dead time at Monterey. I'm going through the postgraduate school program. Um, and I don't really know uh, what to do with all the extra time. I mean, it's great that I'm around more for my family and our second kid was born there and I got to 
really kind of help repair some relationship stuff. Cause you know, the, up to that point, I was, I was on the road all the time. I was just, just going, going, gone, gone, gone. So Monterey was a great time for my wife and I to have kind of some downtime, but the flip side of that was I was struggling with the downtime. So anyway, I call Mike and he's like, don't you have a friend that, 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 that died? And at that point we had had a couple guys. Um, but I said, yeah, yeah, we, I lost Neil. Uh, you know, we, we, we lost Neil. And uh, without skipping a beat, he goes, John, you should do something badass in memory of that guy. And I said, okay, well, what, what do you got in mind? <laughs> he said, why don't you swim across the English Channel? <laughs> and I mentioned it earlier. I, I was a middle distance guy. I wasn't a, a, a distance swimmer. I certainly had never done a marathon swim in cold water. And... um so I reflected on it for about five seconds. And I said, well, I don't know, Mike, let me call Patty, Neil's wife. Uh, and I said, Mike, I'll call you back. And so I called Patty and within, you know, 10 seconds, she's like, oh my God, you got to do it. You got to do it. Neil would love that. And oh, by the way, Nathan will think it is so cool. Nathan is uh, Neil's, Neil's son. I said, oh, okay, Patty, I'm going to do it. So I called Mike back. I said, well, I'm, I'm going to do it. I don't know how I'm going to do it being at school, but I'm going to do it. And he said, uh, well, look into it because you can't wear rubber. And I said, what? It's cold. And he goes, yeah, well, I look into it. I'm pretty sure you can't wear a wetsuit. And he was right again um, for the, a swim, the count, you know, be recognized by the Channel Association and all that. Um, you can't wear any neoprene. You just wear swim cap and all this stuff. So then it became a, uh, a, a function of when to do it, finding the time to train, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, I like telling people this piece of the story because um, I, I wasn't used to cold water with no wetsuit. But in Monterey, the, the water temperature is just, just about perfect because – in Dover, the water temp kind of oscillates between 56 and 59 during the time of year in the summer when you swim uh, Fahrenheit. And the temperature in Monterey, you, the average is about 58 degrees Fahrenheit. Perfect training venue, right? Um, so what I started doing is after class, I'd go down to the beach, put on my Speedo, swim cap, get in the water, 58 degrees start training. So the first time I get in the water, how long you think I lasted? <laughs> as soon as you can stop the hyperventilation. <laughs> Just take a guess, brother. I mean, based on the fact that you did cold water training in the SEAL teams, I would imagine like an hour. No, dude, five minutes. Five minutes. Now, as a, as a boy who my quote-unquote summer vacations were in a Speedo in the same temperature water on shingle because we don't have sand <laughs> in the beaches that I used to go to, I remember taking a hot bath after swimming so that my balls would come back from my stomach back into my sack. So I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, yeah, man, smuggling grapes. And uh, so I came out of the water after five minutes. I was so depressed. I was like, what the hell did I just sign up for? I'm never going to make it. And uh, 
And then I thought of the reason I was doing it. I was like, no, no, got it. Got to just keep, keep, keep going, keep acclimate. And your body's amazing, man. Your, your mind is amazing. I had to take those thoughts, get rid of them and get back in the water the next day. And then the next day I stayed in seven minutes, next day, nine minutes, next day, 15. And you just mentally build up over time. Um, you know, the swims we did in Buds, we always had on 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 rubber. And even the uh the pictures you see of like uh, uh surf torture and all that, um the, it was a very controlled environment. And yeah, you're jackhammering and, and stuff, but there's docks walking up and down the line. And once they see somebody starting to hype out, they pull them offline. It's it's much more controlled than you might think when you're when you're going through it. Um but anyway, for to 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 be allowed to go across and and do do the swim, you have to prove that you uh, uh, can do a ten hour immersion uh, swim in water under sixty degrees Fahrenheit. So I worked my way up to uh, ten hours. Did that in San Francisco, and uh, um, ended up going over there. Got permission to attempt it. Went over there, and the way this swim works is you start. In Dover, this was in August. Uh, you start in Dover and you shoot for this south of Calais, France. There's a there's a point of land, Cape Grenet, and it sticks out like a good, like almost a mile sticks out into the channel. So the goal is to leave from Dover and hit Cape Grenet. And as the crow flies, that's 21 miles. But what happens? is you're with a pilot boat and the pilot boat navigates the current change because you go through two tidal shifts. So you might be swimming, let's just say 1.5 knots this direction, but the current might be going five knots this direction. So your track for that 21 miles as the crow flies, your track ends up looking like a big S. Um, so you, you, you got to have pilot boat. Um, anyway, ended up making it, uh, across and there's, uh, there's all kinds of deep dives on that experience, but just phenomenal, phenomenal, um, experience. And I like, I like talking to, uh, you know, back to talking to college kids about things that seem overwhelming. I remember on that swim, uh, a little past the halfway mark, we were getting into the second shift in the tides, but the, the second shift was going against the wind. So when the tides go in one direction, currents go in one direction and the winds go in the other direction, you, you, you no longer have swells. You now have kind of the, the, the chop of the waves and the wind hitting each other. So it becomes kind of a washing machine. So we had 20 knots of wind going one direction and we had current going the other direction. I was having shoulder issues. My stroke count was falling, which is bad, by the way. Um, I'm in my Speedo. And uh, my dad was on the support crew on the uh, on the, the, the pilot boat with another uh, another family friend. And they could tell I was struggling. I was starting to fall apart. And unbeknownst to me, my dad had snuck on board a uh, three by five American flag. And I look over, I breathe to my right and I look over, I'll never forget. And there standing in 20 knots of wind is my dad and Joe Walsh holding this American flag. 
And it hit me uh, like a ton of bricks. I was like, oh shit, get out of your own way, John. You're not doing this for you. You're doing this in memory of Neil and you're doing it to raise money for gold star families like, like Patty and Nathan. And um, this ain't about you. This is much bigger than you. And I like telling people that because when things get hard, uh, if you're going to embark on something or, or on a journey that's really difficult and you know it's difficult, do it for a reason bigger than than yourself um, because then it makes it much more bearable. As soon as I saw the flag, all the pain and discomfort melted away. Uh, stroke count came back up um, and uh, ended up making it. So cool, cool experience. But um, the coolest part about going to Monterey was getting to, was getting to do that. Beautiful. Well, two things. I used to lifeguard in Hampstead Heath, which is in London. And the beginning of the season, there was one year and it was still freezing in April. And we had to do lifeguard, almost like a test, annual test. And I think the water was 48 degrees that day. And you had to dive in and get, you know, soil from the bottom and all that stuff. And again, I'm sure my balls were back in my throat. Um, (laughs) But in that same experience... I remember there was this gentleman who literally looked like a bear, one of the hairiest men I've ever seen, kind of barrel-chested, and he was a, a channel swimmer as well. And he would put his cap on and his Speedos and his goggles, and he would be able to do And it was a smallish pond compared to the, the main one that we uh, lifeguarded on. But he had it perfectly where no matter how many laps in he was, it was the exact same time every single lap and this is a, a, a pond it's not like he's following lines or doing laps it was a circle that he was swimming so you're a 200 meter swimmer then you end up you know going through buds and becoming a seal how did you train for the not not just the, the the cold exposure but the actual exertion of of swimming i mean it was 21 miles as the crow flies it was probably what 30 miles that you actually swam in the ocean yeah, they, the course over ground, our GPS track was 37 uh, miles. Um, but you're not really swimming 37 miles, right? Because if the current's moving five knots one direction, you, you know, so you're, you're crabbing. The pilot boat takes care of all the, the navigation. But, um, you know, getting the, the distance, uh, it, it was not the issue. It was the temperature was the issue for me. So... Uh, you know, I think any endurance uh, athlete out there that's listening has experienced that uh, uh, mapping out your training plan. So you slowly increase the mileage, slowly, incrementally increase the mileage over time. And then at a certain point before the event, you back the mileage off and you kind of taper, taper off to save, save your body from injury and whatnot. Um, the cold water exposure, uh, was similar, but it was just a very, very small incremental. It was all by time. So I was less worried about, um, getting in shape for the distance and more worried about being immersed in cold water for, for two and a half hours and not, not hyping out, um, but I put on 25 pounds with lots of Guinness and lots of uh, King Arthur Supreme pizzas in, in Monterey, California, and that that certainly helped. But um, 
I grew up, uh, or when I was swimming in uh, at the Air Force Academy, one of our coaches, Karen Burton, she was a channel swimmer, and uh, she's one of the ones I called, and she she helped me map out the, the 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 mileage. But she was the one that told me it's it's less about the the duration, the distance, because you'll make the distance, no problem. It's the temperature, it's the cold water that'll get you. That and the rough. Uh, you know, it's kind of crapshoot what weather scenario you get with wind and um, and whatnot. Uh, so we got we got pretty fortunate. I mean, yeah, we got a, a blast of wind out in the middle, but it subsided after a couple hours. Beautiful. There's a guy, uh, Ross Edgley, who swam around the entire British Isles, who I still want to get on here one day because he's a human performance, you know, mad scientist as well, self-experimentation. He's done all kinds of other crazy things like the triathlon, dragging the log around and all. It's just insane. But um, again, he talked, of course, the endurance. But I mean, you know, like you said, that just because you're swimming doesn't mean you're not going to get ill. He had GI problems. You talked about the the drying out of the mouth. Well, he was in a wetsuit, so his skin started sloughing off as he's swimming around. So these are all the wow. other factors that people don't think about, you know, when you guys are swimming in the ocean like that. Edgely, Edgely. Isn't that uh, Chris Hemsworth's uh, trainer? Is it the same guy? Um, Yes, that's right. Exactly. Okay. Yes, yep. That's exactly Yeah, wasn't he in uh, Limitless, that guy? He probably is. I haven't seen that show yet, but oh, I'm sure he is. Yeah. 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 Oh, he's a stud, man. I he like is. that dude. Crazy. Yeah. Well, yeah. I want to I want to ask you one question that I ask anyone who saw combat before we go to, you know, the the uh, transition and the um, human performance program and some of the things you did at the end of the career. The average civilian gets a very polarized view of war through their very divided media either very pro-war, kill them all, stack bodies, let God sort them out, or very anti-war, they're all a bunch of baby killers. And then you have the men and women, or argue, you know, more often than not, boys and girls that we send overseas to fight for our country and protect you know, people in theirs. The first is a two-part question. The first part, and it might be pre-9-11 for you, I'm not sure, was there a point where you found yourself amidst combat where regardless of the politics that sent you there, you realized there were some atrocities, some horrible people that needed to be taken care of? Yeah. Yeah. When, when, you, uh, when you see people in the uh, medical uh 10 after an ied strike that the previous night you were having chow with that are friends of yours and uh and and you witness that and you live that it the 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 anger that boils up in you is almost uh hard to describe um so yes i definitely uh experienced that um but you know when you're when you're with a team of like-minded uh guys and you're going after uh and you both have the same uh mission set that you're pursuing um you end up leaning on each other in so many different ways um and you're there for your teammates to lean on and you get exposed to some really ugly 
the ugly side of humanity. And yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to reflect back and think about. It's hard to talk about, but incredibly it's also where you, and this is my opinion, but it's also where you see some of the best aspects of humanity with those that, that you're working with. And I don't just mean Americans. Some of the most courageous stuff I've witnessed in my life was um, Iraqi teammates and Afghan uh, teammates working with us. And um, so, yes, it's bad. It's hard, but you realize that what you're doing is so much, it's about so much more than just yourself. There's such a bigger picture. And when you're working when you're working with the, the Afghan National Police, I have this one uh, example in, in mind. And these guys, all they want, all they wanted was the Haqqani Network Taliban and the local Taliban. They just wanted them gone. They just wanted to protect their kids from that. And, of course, our mission was more take care of the problem set over there so we don't have it at home. But when you see the host nation guys that just and, and what's happening to their kids and the suicide bombers and the kids they use, it's just it, it, it was horrible. It was horrible. And um, being part of making that go away was one of the greatest honors of of my life. And uh, in a weird sort of way, I'm grateful for it. I feel like it's um it's exposed me to a part of humanity that um that shouldn't be there. And uh I think one of the cool things about America and our NATO partners and our non-NATO partners is on that topic, we are in lockstep. There's a lot of stuff we don't agree on, but on making people go away that we're responsible for something like 9-11, we are in lockstep. And that is really, really powerful to be part of something like that. Well, thank you for that perspective. I think the the you know the things that our men and women do is has got a you know a, a two-sided element to it. Um, we need to share the stories of the courage and even the loss and and highlight what was done for this country, but also there needs to be a cautionary tale like, hey, this is the cost of sending our young men and women out there. So if you're in a government building somewhere and poking the bear because you think it's going to help with your votes, these are the voices of the men and women that came home with physical issues, with mental issues, maybe came home in a coffin. And so if there's no option but to send them, Okay, that's that's a you know a universal acceptance then and off you go. But all these other conflicts that you're starting to trying to send everyone to, we have to be reminded as Americans, as British, as everyone in, in their home country, that this is this is something that we send as a last resort, not a continuing thing, especially God forbid, if a part of the reason is that your friends in high places are making a lot of money when we are at war. And so now, you know, that kind of checks and balances is kind of skewed. So I think it's so important that we hear from the boots on the ground itself. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's uh it's crazy, James. When you when you think about um how long we've been in sustained combat operations after 9-11. I mean, it's never happened before in this country. We've never we've never been down this this road before. So you know, the, the second and third order effects of that type of uh, lifestyle, um, we don't we don't even know what it means now. We're seeing some of it with the suicide numbers. Um, I was having a great talk with the guy in the VA and he was walking through mapping out some of the numbers. You know, you, you remember you would hear all the time, 22 day, 22 day, 22 day. And what he said was um, a lot of that 22 a day is actually not post 9-11 veterans, but a lot of that is um, either homeless population or Vietnam veterans or a combination thereof. And his his point was, if if we're seeing 22 a day now, and I think the number is even higher now, uh, if we're seeing that now, and that's the majority from Vietnam era, and Vietnam involved a an average of two deployments per person. Some of them were, uh, most of them were were one deployment, right? Because you know you get uh, drafted in, uh, but some guys did multiple deployments. So the average deployment during Vietnam was two. Um, when you look at what this country has asked of our military now. I mean, I'll use a, a, a friend of mine, Joe, Job and I, uh, we went to the Air Force Academy. I was a 92 grad. Joe Price uh, was a 93 grad. And we were both at SEAL Team 2 together. Believe it or not, two Air Force Academy guys at the same SEAL team. Jump forward to December 22nd. Um, December uh, 22nd, 2012. And I get, I, I, I'm, I'm taking my son to a, a birthday party. I'm at, I'm a commanding officer at our unit in Germany. Um, we had all three of our kids. Meg was really, really young and our oldest, I'm taking to him to a birthday party. And uh, I get this call um old friend of mine and uh and i could tell in his voice right away they had some really bad news and i said okay man what who 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 was it and he said hey man it was joe i was like oh, fuck okay and you know if you're in this game and you see it in the fire department right if you're in this not game sorry but if you're in this world uh, long enough, you will go to memorial services, sometimes a lot of them. And um, everybody I know in the teams has gotten these calls. Everyone I know in the teams has gotten these calls. So I took a deep breath. And Job at the time was the commanding officer of SEAL Team 4 in Afghanistan. He had guys working for us in Germany. I had guys working for him in Afghanistan, but commanding officer, SEAL team, the pinnacle, I would say the pinnacle of a, a naval special warfare officer career. 
is not just being a commanding officer, but leading troops downrange in combat. It's the pinnacle. And this was Job's 14th uh, deployment. I don't know if all 14 were combat, but it was his 14th deployment. 14. Um, so the guy, uh, I'm leaving names out here, but the guy that called me from Virginia Beach, um, he said, hey, hey, JD, what you need to know is um, it appears that Job died by his own hand, self-inflicted gunshot wound. And uh, fuck, it's hard to talk about it still. Um, this is a story that I feel is important to get out there because Job was seen in the, in our community in the Naval Special. He was seen as one of the most resilient guys we had. He never said no. He always was raising his hand. Send me, send me. I want to go. Um, and the point I like to really hammer home with his story is that, and I said it earlier, it doesn't matter how freaking resilient you are, everybody's got a breaking point. And in Job's case, he had lost uh, at that point three guys on his deployment. Um, And he was uh, blaming himself. He wasn't sleeping. He was on some meds. He stopped working out, you know, all this stuff. Um, And he reached his breaking point. And, uh, you know, that's just one example um but back to your original point um with what we're asking the young adults of this country and a very small minority of the young adults in this country that what we're asking them to do in support of their nation going forward and doing great things um we got to be careful man we got to be careful because um especially in uh, special operations in general, guys will not say, Hey, I've had, I, I need a break. I need to back off. They just, they don't do that. You see the same thing in the fire service. You know, you got, you have guys doing 80 hour uh, weeks. None of them are going to stand up in front of their teammates and say, Hey, I've had enough. Can you pull me off the line for a week? I need some downtime. And uh, so it, it's a whole different ball of wax now you said the 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 leadership there's so much it's so much more important for leaders to be a little more intrusive with how they're leading their formations and how they're taking care of their people and recognizing um that maybe after 13 deployments you need a break and i'm not i'm not in job's case i'm not saying anything anybody did necessarily anything wrong it's just that for me personally that example uh really highlighted for me for where i was in that at my in my career at the time it really highlighted for me um the importance of oh whoa 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 what what are we doing taking a step back and trying to see the whole the whole picture and it's what drove me to um, pursue the last job I did in the Navy at SOCOM uh, headquarters. Well, firstly, thank you for sharing that story. I think this raw emotion that I hear over and over again, especially from respected high performers, you know, alpha to use a very cheesy term, is is needed. 
because as you know, a lot of the, the population, especially the men that were raised kind of in our generation, were brought up on this Stallone, Schwarzenegger, John Wayne bullshit of, you know, this is the superhero that is the man. And that couldn't be further from the truth. And I always tell people, you want to see a real hero? Watch the Band of Brothers series and listen to the real men who are now in their 80s still in tears because of what they saw and what they had to do. So that is, you know, that vulnerability right, right. is so important. But with with Job, you know, I would argue as well. I mean, obviously we've got um, Chad Wilkinson. Um, we've got uh, David Metcalf, who's the nucleus of 7X, we'll get to in a little bit. There's the TBI element, 14 deployments. How many concussions was he exposed to on top of sleep deprivation and all these other things? So even if we go to war, I'm, like I said, I'm nothing to do with the military. I'm, I'm a, a first responder, but so many people, especially the Green Beret community, kind of have the same thing. Yes, Afghanistan was necessary, but we should have been in. We should have, you know, shut down the training camps, killed the key figures, and then, you know, trained up the local militia and then left. So even if you have to go overseas and take care of something, there's a responsibility to bring our men and women home as soon as we can. So 14 deployments wouldn't even exist. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, it, 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 when we should have come out of Afghanistan versus how long we should have stayed, that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> I, and, and I actually don't want to go down that road, but, uh, you know, there, there's always another side of the coin. I mean, look, look, we're, we're still in Japan. We're still in Korea. We're still in Germany. And, um, that's just, it's just another aspect to keep in, uh, to keep in mind. Um, but the TBI piece, holy crap. <laughs> cumulative subconcussive issues mtbi tbi blast exposure sleep disrupted sleep guys stuck in hypervigilance um not being able to get into the parasympathetic state which is absolutely key and essential to your health and well-being um I cannot tell you how many friends of mine uh, have struggled in that world. And, um, and I did too. I mean, I, I went and got, got treatment for it and all this kind of stuff, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's real. And and when we get back to what we were talking about before, when you had a year and a half to kind of rest and recover, that also helped with all the MTBI and concussive uh, events and blast exposure. Um the rotation's gotten a little better now than, than it was in those immediate years after 9-11. Um, but yeah, it's 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 still it's still an issue, 100 percent And um one of the really cool things I think you guys are doing with the 7X project is really amplifying that talking point with the documentary that you're going to make um, and where you're going with human performance and baselining and not just baselining HP stuff, you know, strength, agility, power, but baselining neurocognitive capability 
on these guys because a lot of the people that were struggling uh, with, let's just say, TBI symptoms, if there had been a neurocognitive baseline from when they initially came through assessment and selection, it would be so much easier for the medical community to identify, hey, whoa, that guy needs a break because here's where he was and here's where he is now. And we, 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 we need to, we need to adjust that. We need to give him some downtime. We need to force him if need be to come off the line. And there's ways to do that. I think that the military community would hundred percent support. Um, and I can't speak for all the military, but I know that us SOCOM special operations command has moved in the direction of neurocognitive baselining in addition to the human performance baseline. And uh, to me, that that's great news. And I hope that is spreading throughout the military because it's so, so important. Well, I think that's how you also have the conversation of mental health to the naysayer, to the guy that still buys into, you know, I'm Superman. And I mean that in a, you know, in a, in a kind way, but a lot of us do buy into that superhero mentality of the first responder or the military. But when you understand from a human performance uh, lens that a quiet mind is what is going to allow you to enter the flow state and therefore be a high performer on the battleground in a structure fire. That I think is another kind of foot in the door for that conversation. So, okay, you don't, you don't believe that, you know, you're ever going to have any mental health issues. All right. Well, beautiful. Like you said, especially if you've got a way of baselining to get in that flow state, you have to have a calm mind. So let's use these same tools that we would address from the mental health side. Let's talk, let's reframe it as, as human performance. All right, we're going to do meditation. We're going to do breath work because I want you in the, you know, in the, the shoot house or whatever kind of scenario you have, we're going to try and take you up 10%. So that way you kind of get to access the same thing, but you're calling it something else. Yeah. 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 It's, um, the 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 strides that we've made with the uh the human performance in the human performance world I, gosh i wish i wish so much of that had been in place you know 30 years ago because myself and my teammates would be in a totally different place physically maybe even emotionally because when you train when you appropriately and I'm not taking anything away from assessment selection. I, I firmly believe that needs to be freaking hard. And if it's not, that's how you wean out the, those that probably shouldn't, shouldn't be there. So I'm not talking about green beret, initial training, assessment, selection seals, um, MAR operators, AFSOC, all that, but the way we train inside the teams after assessment selection, once you're in that organization, uh, what we're seeing now is so different than what we were doing 20, 30 years ago. And, uh, and it's, it's smart. It's really, it's really helping the guys out. And back to the seven X thing, I think that's part of your mission is to help take that to the next level and promulgate that throughout not just the military but the uh, the first responder world too i would imagine you're you're seeing some of the same same issues in in fire police emt as well 
Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, and the, you said the docu-series and the uh, the manual is going to be amazing. That's why the 7X itself is going to be incredible, but it's it's the breakdown piece. It's the shiny object as well, obviously, is going to be some amazing footage of these guys. You know, I mean, we're going to be Ant- in Antarctica two weeks tomorrow, so that's going to be pretty epic. But really, the real takeaway is going to be after we get back. These guys are physically, mentally, you know, spiritually beat down now how do we put them back together again what part of the preparation worked where were some failures and then you know what does the rehab look like and now we have the on-ramp the event and then the uh the transition to really pull all that data from that that podcast on rich roll uh, kind of walking through everything that's going to happen uh for the event is it, it, that was great that was great I, I pushed that thing everywhere man because nobody really knew we kind of knew like second third hand something was going on it was going to be cool marathon on seven continents jumping seven cons um but i i i think that podcast put it on the map that was really that was uh well done i don't know how you guys got on there but good job <laughs> <laughs> all right well the, the other half of that question i'm going to quickly throw at you and then we'll talk about that last position you held and that'll take us to katsu as well the we talked about you know the worst and you touched on it another voice that's not heard is kindness and compassion on the battlefield it's so often you know we're told oh we're at war with iraq or we're at war with afghanistan when the reality is there's some extremists in those countries that are terrorizing the people of those nations and i hear so many stories on here of kindness and compassion whether it's the people the native people whether it's you know our military so whether i mean i'm sure there's a lot but there are any kind of stories that really um, stuck out to you of kindness and compassion amongst some of this you know misery and, and horror that you were working thousands thousands the the negative the ugliness the 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 the, the part that maybe you hear the most about it, a fraction of the kindness the compassion the helping your fe- fellow man out um one one of my deployments was a, uh, a provincial reconstruction team deployment in uh, in Afghanistan, and you know, as American military guys, we are not supposed to have any interaction with the Afghan local females, right? And we're supposed to try and avoid interactions with the kids. Um, but when you hire a bunch of Afghan males, military age males, by the way, and you hire those guys and you help walk the, the Afghan contracting process through uh, it, the entirety of a piece of ground with nothing on it, all the way up to building a school and manning the school with teachers and getting supplies in the school and da, 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 da. You're probably thinking what Navy seal, what? but yeah, provincial reconstruction. We helped with that. And then to have ladies in, you know, covered up in their shadows and stuff and come up and in tears, hugging you and falling at your feet. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In their broken English and, you know, us and our broken posh too, saying, you know, that's why we're here to help, to help. And um, those stories, tons of those stories, ton, tons of them. And, uh, you know, it's 
for every uh, 10 of those, there's, there's one with, uh, that with ugliness, it's hard to talk about, but um, yeah, I'll send you a great picture taken. Uh, it was in, uh, it was in Ramadi in uh, 2006 and it was, uh, we were helping the Marines with some security and it was right after a school had been built and we were leaving and um, I turn around and there were all these kids and I just, I had, I had some extra candy or whatever, you know, in my pocket and I go over there and they just surrounded me. And, and it's one of my favorite pictures from all my deployments. I'll send it to you. It's, uh, you know, we, we, we did some really good stuff over there. Uh, yeah. Does that answer your question? No, it does completely. Because like I said, this is the problem. We don't hear that voice either. It's this extreme, either very pro-anti, but this is the voice of the battlefield. And you know, a lot of the voice of the battlefield are, I mean, one of my favorite ones is that, you know, military veterinarians are taking care of local dogs and horses. And, you know, I mean, we hear so much, you know, some of the kindness is coming from our uniform people. Some of them, I mean, I, my favorite part of the uh, Lone Survivor story, which was a lot more prominent in the book than the film, sadly, but the courage and sacrifice and selflessness of that village that protected him, you know, that's another one. I mean, they risked their lives, everything, just to protect this American, you know, seal that was, that was, um, you know, finding refuge in their village. So these are the other, you know, it's the other piece of the coin, the other piece of the puzzle where I feel like, you know, the entire nation was vilified when actually, you know, our our own military are doing beautiful things, but the courage that I hear from, you know, the Afghani and the Iraqi interpreters and commanders that I've had on here as well, like people aren't told the whole story and the whole story is beautiful and the whole story is a cautionary tale. But if you just get these clickbait sound bites, the people at home are going to have no understanding of not only what our men and women did for this other country, but the incredible heroism of the people in that nation itself. Yeah, I, 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 I couldn't agree with you more, James. And cautionary tales, good way, good way to put it. But yeah, our, our armed forces did some really great, great things over there and helped a lot of people. And we made some bad people go away that had to go away. Absolutely. Well, speaking of taking care of people, talk to me about the role that you held at the end of your career and then the human performance side as well as the uh, the kind of the wellness side. So uh, my last job in the Navy, uh, I was the director of the HODIF program. HODIF stands for Preservation of the Force and Family. It's a program that SOCOM started, really started under Admiral Olson when they started peeling the onion back across the Special Operations Force to see what um, what was truly going on with, with families, the guys, predictability or unpredictability of deployment cycles, and just seeing what all was going on out there. Cause as I was talking about before, the wheels started coming off the bus and it was making its way all the way up to the headquarters. Um, so he, uh, anyway, when Admiral McRaven, Bill McRaven followed Admiral Olson, um, he took all the data that Admiral Olson had gathered to, and saw the pressure on the force. Initially, it was POTIF, pressure on the force and family. 
And then Admiral McRaven said, hey, let's build a program to address all those pressure points. And that was the beginning of POTIF. And POTIF, initially, we had four domains. We had a spiritual domain, a human performance domain, a, um, a family social domain, and a psychological domain. And if you thought of each of those domains, think of like a Venn diagram with overlapping circles and where all four of those circles overlapped, that was kind of the focal point, what we were after, to try and improve all of that for um, for for our operators, for our personnel, but for the families as as well. What what we found back to that that twenty four month cycle versus twelve month cycle, early on uh, before nine eleven, they're just, I mean, yeah, every command had an ombudsman, and there was communication with the families, but it was just through this one person that uh, uh, would support the commander at the command. Um, after nine eleven. So before, there wasn't a whole lot of focus on the family, okay? After 9-11, when, when things started really going south and Admiral Olson pushed these people out to all the commands across the world, all the soft commands, what they were coming back with were one of the key pieces uh, that they were kind of illuminating was the family was suffering in ways that the family never had dealt with in the past. And, um, and there's a lot to this conversation, but the, the, the ultimate big change was we as a community decided to start taking um, contracted resources, people, personal service contracts, and taking these people and embedding them in operational units in all four domains. So having a, a family readiness coordinator working inside an operational command, having a, uh, maybe not a psychologist, but like a licensed clinical social worker or counselor working inside the command. An HP professional, it could be a physical therapist, it could be a trainer, it could be a strength conditioning coach, dietitian, taking those people and embedding them in the operational command, spiritual chaplains, get more access to chaplains and taking all these helping resources, but we didn't have money for it. So I, uh, uh, you know, my, my hat's off to Admiral uh, McRaven for doing this. I, I know he broke some glass to, to, to pull it all together, but he went to Congress and he, uh, he, he basically laid out why the deployment cycles, the unpredictability, the uh, a lot of what special operations was dealing with, why we needed some resources to help and what his plan was. And the plan was take these helping resources and embed them into commands. And what what ended up happening, let's just let's just talk specifically behavioral health, right? From the psychology perspective, you you have this stigma out there of seeking, um, any kind of counseling or behavioral health assistance. And it, it, and it's seen as a bad stigma, you know, guys, guys back then 
Guys didn't want anything to do with it. They would be, uh, they saw people going to visit psychologists, going to see the shrink as being mentally uh, broken. What happened was we took some of these, we took these, uh, let's just say licensed clinical social workers, LCSWs, embedded them in the commands. And what happens is they start building relationships inside the command. They start going to the gym with the guys. They start eating at the same chow hall. They start interacting with all the senior enlisted leadership, the officers, and the guys see that. The command sees that. And then you see the command master chief going in to see the counselor and shutting the door. Same with the XO, same with the CO. So you started... This, this relationship built on trust inside of the operational command. And then everything just incrementally started slowly uh, getting better. And we still have a long ways to go, I know. But embedding helping resources inside the operational commands was the best thing that came out of POTIF. So that parallels some something that I've talked about for a while <clears throat> I had a unique perspective because I have spent, uh, I've worked for four fire departments and then volunteered for a fifth one for a, just a heartbeat, a very short time. But of those four, that's four hiring practices, four times doing these crazy psych tests, three times doing polygraphs, which, you know, I tongue in cheek mm-hmm. tell basically is smoke and mirrors. It's bullshit, complete waste of money. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, and then I've asked the people in the psychology world, to me, the, the psych test that they give us is kind of ridiculed within the world of psychology. It's it's a you know it's not a well um, respected test at all, and it is. I mean, it's insane. It's you know it's a bunch of questions. You know, do you like dogs? Do you like driving cars? Do you like music? Do you like touching kids? Do you like flowers? You know, oh wait a second, what was that? You know, and it's almost like trying to catch you with these bizarre phrases. And then the polygraph, like I said, is really just to smoke and mirrors you to confess to something that you did, you know, when you were younger. But the reality is your criminal, you know, your background check is really going to show if you're a good boy, you know, largely, and you're, you know, worthy of becoming whatever position. What I feel, having heard over 700 stories now, you know, and not everyone has a, you know, a more powerful early story, but more often than not, the men and women in uniform have a certain amount of childhood trauma which is probably what drove them into service in the first place to to either stop the vicious circle that they were in maybe generationally so you know more often than not also to fill that void with adrenaline and excitement and then that search for community and tribe as well so if we know that there is gonna be a certain level of trauma in someone's past that potentially can be an absolute asset in our profession I don't understand why we do this box checking psychological testing, but we take the same exact budget, and I'm talking obviously first responders here, and give them X amount of counseling sessions at the front door. Not only now are you giving them an opportunity to process some of the things that happened before they ever put the uniform on, but as you said, you've now embedded embedded, embedded a counselor from day one and normalized the mental health discussion. So the moment they start going through some things, and it can be internal, it can be external with family, you know immediately I'm going to go talk to you know Sarah or Steve, my counselor. And in my opinion... I'm sure the cost of these psych tests and the polygraph would equate five, 
you know, counseling sessions and then therefore be justify having someone, as you said, permanently employed by a fire department or a police department or a dispatch. Um, so you wouldn't even have to come up with the money. But rather than the CYI, CYA box checking, you proactively allow these men and women to process what they brought in, which in turn will become resilience within the profession. Yeah, I mean, that, that whole, uh, totally, totally. And, and we've, made, we've made some progress on that. You know, the, that idea that if you break an arm, you go and see a doc and you get it fixed. If, you're, if you break something upstairs, you go and see a doc, you get it fixed. And um, you, you, you know, it, with all the resources, though, that, that are uh, available now, I, I firmly believe that the, the best resource that we have um, is each other. And, and, and our teammates, it doesn't matter what kind of organization you're talking about. Um, I, I talk about this a lot. It's really, it's really important to step out of your comfort zone when you think you might need some help and to ask for it. But more importantly, because a lot of guys won't do that, I would argue 99% will not do it. It's too uncomfortable to ask for help. But the flip side of that conversation is um, when you see somebody that you think might be struggling, being that teammate, being that wingman, being that, that buddy uh, for them to lean on. And I think the hardest thing that guys struggle with, I struggled with it with Job. I wish I could go back in time because we would have these face phones just like this. We'd have these these uh, VTC, video teleconferences, every week, just he and I, because he had guys working for me and I had guys working for him. So we would talk to each other all the time. And I wish I could go back in time when he, and, and I saw he wasn't sleeping, he looked like shit. And I wish I'd go back and just be like, hey, bro, not only, hey, bro, are you okay, but are you okay? Are you thinking of hurting yourself? And I'm not saying that would have made any difference in his scenario. Um, but I wish more people would do that now when they see a teammate that they think is struggling, even if it's just kind of like that sixth sense, you're not sure something seems off. There are so many people out there struggling, man, that, that I, I wish more people would do that. Well, one thing, again, I've observed... I think this is another piece of the puzzle that, that people need to understand is the best way to create an environment for people to talk is to be vulnerable yourself. So, for example, you know, in that conversation with Job, say, well, look, when I transitioned out into the educational portion, here's what I was going through. You know, here's the thoughts I had. Here's the depression I found myself because I was away from my team and I had this guilt because, you know, I was losing people that were overseas and I think that's the other part is rather than simply saying, are you okay? Almost starting with sharing a story. Like for yeah. me, you know, when I went through paramedic school, I was going through a divorce. I was a single dad. That was probably one of the mm. lowest points I had. I never got to that suicide ideation point, but another one is a back injury. I mean, you take a firefighter who has yeah. purpose and physicality and you put them where they can't even put their shoes on or pick up their child anymore. Another emotionally crippling part of my life. So by opening the door with that, it's almost like you're not just looking down and saying, are you okay? You're actually 
squatting down next to them and saying, let me tell you about my pain. And then that, in turn, I find, opens the door for a conversation because you were the one that initiated the, the vulnerability. Yeah, and so much of it starts with, uh, uh, a lot of it starts with physical injuries, especially guys that work in a very, in a job that's very focused on physicality. And then you get an injury, you mentioned your back. And I mean, my guy, you can't, you can't do anything in the firefighter world without your back being at least 90%. You got so much weight, you're, you got, you're demanding so much of your body. Um, sorry about that. Get rid of that thing. Um, a lot of a lot of the behavioral health uh, issues start with physical issues, and I went I went through that myself, man. Thirteen orthopedic surgeries over my career. I mean, I was an orthopedic mess, man. <laughs> no, I agree completely. I actually found a thing called foundation training, which I interviewed one of their head coaches yesterday. Who's a good friend of mine now, but it saved my career. And this is the other, you know, side is. Sadly, in the workman's comp world, a lot of these men and women are told, well, you know, we'll cut you open. Here's a bunch of pills, you know, and then, you know, we'll fuse your bones together or whatever it is. And more often than not, they come out and they're never going to get back to that that hundred. You know, I think and we'll get to Katsu next. There are some amazing movement practices and tools that people can use. You know, I'm not talking about a completely broken femur. You can't just, you know, rub some herbs in and do some some, you know, jumping jacks and it'll be good again. But there's so many musculoskeletal injuries that you can rehab with movement practices. And therefore, you know, the the other benefit of that is you're far less likely to be going down the opiate road, which can be a, a vicious circle for so many. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll and you'll uh beyond these two weeks, you'll be with MJ and a few other guys that have the Katsu machines. And so you'll you'll get to experience that yourself. Um, how, how some of this new science and technology that's out there can really, can really help guys. So let's get to that topic. Then I've been chatting two hours. We haven't got to, to, to Katsu yet. Um, <laughs> I know, man. I just looked at the clock. Like, Are you okay on time? Are you okay I'm on time? Good. I'm, I'm good. I'm, I wiped the afternoon, man. So we can go as long as you want. Brilliant. I'm just thinking of the regular uh, Joe listeners playing and being like, my God, land a freaking plane, dude. No, no, they, the regular Joe <laughs> listener knows, okay, this is going to be a longer one. There's, there's, there's from 30 <laughs> minutes to four and a half hours on my library. So there we go. <laughs> so awesome. we know, you know, you, you said about the struggle in Monterey, you know, when you were kind of taken from the tribe for a bit. And I think that's an important point. People talk about this with the transition out as far as retirement, but this can happen with promotion. This can happen with injury where you're simply taken, you know, if, and I never wanted to leave the back seat, the fire engine, because I adored that position. So to go from a lieutenant in the front seat to a battalion chief, and now you're doing staffing and, you know, you're not around the people that in itself can be an unseen, you know, loss of tribe. So talk to me about your transition. What made you finally pull the trigger? And, you know, was it, were there any struggles in that final transition out of the uniform? Uh, I don't know, Jay. I, I feel like everybody has a different kind of threshold for how much they and their families can handle. Um, for me, it, it it's funny. Um, my family... They were totally good with the military. They loved moving. 
every two years and going to live in Germany, going to live in Guam and going on leave to go to New Zealand. I mean, they loved seeing the world. Um, so it wasn't them. And I'm always, I always be real clear on why I got out when I did. It wasn't them. It was, it was all me. I, uh, I, I came back from a deployment where I was gone just over 12 months and I missed one of my son's birthday twice on one deployment. And there were some other things that happened on that, that, that one, but that one little nugget right there. So we have three kids, but missing one of their birthday twice, that was, I just had the hardest time uh, getting past that. Um, so I knew, you know, I knew right, right away. And, and I was still years out from transitioning out, you know, I still did two more jobs after that. But when I came back from that deployment, I was like, yeah, I'm done. I mean, I'll, I'll pay it forward as much as I need to, you know, I'll do a staff work and all that. Uh, but I need to start setting conditions, uh, to get out. Some, some guys hit that at four years, some guys at 30 years, they still have another 10 in them. So, you know, for me, that, 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 yeah, 20, 25 was it, man. That's all, that's all I had to give. <laughs> so what was that transition? So you were obviously mentally ready. Did you mm -hmm. transition into Katsu or what, what did that look like from, you know, the SEAL teams onwards? Well, uh, first of all, I felt like I was really fortunate because I, I fell into something that already was helping me when I, I was active duty. So I, I mentioned all the, orthopedic drama that I had. Um, my last two surgeries, the PTs used Katsu for my rehab. And, uh, you know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are like, Katsu, what the hell is that? It sounds like Shiatsu. Well, it kind of, it, it, Atsu in Japanese means pressure. Ka means increase of pressure. Um, guy in Japan, and we don't need to go too deep on it all, but for decades, he's been perfecting this way of taking um, elastic pneumatic bands and putting them high on your arms or the leg bands high on your legs and perfecting a pressure sequence where the bands have, say, 30 seconds of pressure on one on this setting, right? So 30 seconds of pressure and in five seconds of none, and in 30 seconds, a little higher, 10 millimeters mercury, higher pressure, and then none, and doing that over and over again. And when you do that, and you dilate tissue like that, and then relax it, let new blood in, and then dilate the tissue again and again and again, it's a form of recovery for flushing metabolic waste. It's also a great way to work out if you want to go very low load. But for me, what I fell in love with was on the rehab piece, you know, they, the, the PTs, they want you to exercise. They want to create metabolic stress, but they don't want to overly tax the skeletal system. If you just had surgery, well, this is a way to do that. So you're, essentially tricking the brain into thinking you're working much harder than you are. So you'll, you'll use Katsu in conjunction with these rehab movements and it just feels much, much different. Um, 
and you get a hormonal response as if you were doing heavy work or heavy weights. But in reality, you're doing by definition, light intensity movement, but you're not straining the skeletal system. So you end up healing a lot faster. And um, so they did uh, the guys at Soxent, they did that for my rehab for two surgeries. I fell in love with it. Uh, ended up going out during my uh, uh, retirement leave to Japan with my my family, met Dr. Sato, um, got more training, uh, just went into a full-blown learning mode about how this methodology can help systemically. So think about somebody that is dealing with TBI or somebody that uh, you know has blast injury and just somebody that you don't want putting a heavy, heavy strain on their, uh, on their body. When you're doing katsu, that pressure on period of time, your heart, your perfusion goes up because they're not tourniquets. Your heart has to pump harder to keep the blood moving past the band. And this is the beauty. Well, you're, when your heart's pumping harder, when your perfusion goes up, it goes up everywhere. So think blood brain barrier, think retina, think subcutaneous forehead blood flow. Everywhere blood flow improves in the whole body. So you might be having chronic pain, you might be having neuropathic pain, even residual limb pain, think like amputee, phantom limb pain, things like that. This is a way without drugs and um, non-invasive to help a lot of people pass those pain uh, kind of thresholds. So I love it. Been with the company now five and a half years and uh, just steady growth each year. And we're pumped to be uh, part of your project and what you guys are doing at 7X. You guys are going to use it primarily as a recovery modality. So when guys are sitting on the plane, they can just be passive. And every time those bands release, you get that flushing sensation. So you got all this dilated tissue full of metabolic waste, flush it out. So I had uh, Dr. James Stray Gunderson on the show, and I know he's kind of like a spin-off of, of uh, Dr. Sato's early work. Um, he used to work for us. Yes. So I... Yeah. I got to demo their bands. It was quite interesting because I would do a CrossFit workout at the end. I would put them on my legs and then do, I think it was jumping um, air squats that you had to do. And it was incredible. And it, it was very powerful to see that you could have the same exertion, but as you said, with far decreased weight. So if you've got someone rehabbing an injury or you've got someone who's older or, uh, you know, as you said, maybe you don't want to have that kind of... Uh, um, spike in blood pressure that you know might go to the head. It was a it was a great way of of uh, doing more with less, but also that systemic kind of inflammatory process after flushing through the entire body that that made perfect sense to me. But I know as you mentioned, there's there's a kind of uh, um, a pulse element to the actual katsu machine. So so talk to me versus just a a, a pump and and having a steady um, blood flow restriction. What are the benefits of the the kind of um, undulation of your machines? So the the devices you guys will have with you are this. I don't know you, most people be listening, but anybody that's watching um, or anybody that's listening, it's about the size of a deck of cards. 
And it can run in constant mode, which is what you're talking about with uh, the bands that Dr. Jim Street Gunderson would use. But katsu is all about the release. So in Japanese, it's actually katsu jiatsu. Jia is release. Increase of pressure, release of pressure. And that's what this device does. You can run it in constant, but the way Dr. Sato works it almost exclusively is in the cycle mode. So what happens is during the pressure phase, all the tissue distal of the bands dilates, or I like to think of it is all the way down to the capillary tissue and the capillary beds. Imagine all that venous tissue, all those little millions and millions of balloons stretching open for 30 seconds and then letting it go and stretch them open a little further and let it go. And if you think about a brand new balloon, when it, when, when the more you stretch it, the more elasticity you're developing in that, in that, you know, in balloon, we're talking about some, some rubber, right? But in your, in your veins and arteries, vascular elasticity is key and essential. And the more nitric oxide you create in your body, which is what Katsu does, it, you get a lot of hormonal responses, but one of the big biomarkers we see go up significantly is NO or endothelial nitric oxide synthase, but NO numbers go up through, through the roof. NO nitric oxide is key for creating that, that pliability, stretchiness, vascular elasticity. So after you do these cycles of pressure where you're dilating, stretching open tissue and letting it go over and over and over. What happens is the blood flow, uh, your, your, um, they call it the, your perfusion index, your PI, the blood flows much easier through that limb. And over time, your blood pressure, uh, your blood pressures numbers will go down. Um, but again, for how you guys are really going to use it, you don't even you won't even be exercising with it. You'll be using it in a passive mode because each time the pressure releases, your heart is still pumping hard and your that flushes that lactate and metabolic waste out of the tissue that's in your leg. The guys will be using it on their legs almost exclusively. But um yeah, fascinating stuff. There's a sleep component. Um the International Olympic Committee has done some cool research on this stuff. Um, when you're doing those cycles of pressure, the closer you do it to uh, bedtime, the more you can slide the body into that parasympathetic state. You can get the body to go parasympathetic faster, which gets stage three, stage four recovery sleep happens sooner in an athlete that does a katsu cycles, just passive use, really relaxed, um, right before going to bed. So lots of cool things that it's used for. Um, but yeah, I got introduced through uh, orthopedic rehab. It's probably more than you wanted to know. No, no, I wanted to know all about that, and especially the sleep side. I mean, firstly, I'm going to probably use the bands in a pseudo workout because I'm there from a support i'm you know a documentarian partly paramedic and then kind of like the sports um 
you know, sports science assistant as well with with all their gear. So they're going to be running. They're going to be skydiving. They're going to be, well, we'll probably all jump in water, but um, I'm not technically <laughs> yeah, going to be not, getting you're a You're not workout. getting out of that piece. Yeah, no, especially in <laughs> an Antarctica. I don't know how we're going to do that. Probably just roll around in the ice, but... Um, but no, so I still technically am going to want to move, want to want to work out. So I'm thinking, right, how can I find somewhere to hang off that can do pull-ups and push-ups and some air squats that I can put the bands on, get a you know a pseudo workout whilst they're doing their thing. We're going to be doing jujitsu as well, which would be another not with the bands on, but another exercise. But yeah, I mean, if we're going to be sat in this plane for hours at a time between continents. How can I use it when it's available to create a, a body weight workout that will be more challenging because of the bands? Yeah, you'll you'll love it, man. And when you guys are rolling, when you get when you do a jujitsu workout, do the katsu cycles before the workout. So think, just think about this for a second. This is how a lot of Olympians uh, were using it in Tokyo. In the ready room without jumping around and using all that ATP energy, sitting in a chair, nice and relaxed, working on breathing techniques with the bands on running through those automated cycles, you're essentially warming up muscle tissue. You're stretching muscle tissue from the inside out because all, all your, all your connect tissue, all your muscle tissue is made up of capillaries and very, very small micro blood vessels so the more you can stretch and relax that, the more warmed up you're getting uh, the limbs. So it's cool seeing some of the Olympians using katsu in the ready room right before they go to do an event. Michael Andrews is perfect, perfect example. But uh, had the name drop there. <laughs> <laughs> well, also with the sleep, I mean, you're the entire you know i'm sure most of the people listening are on some sort of shift work whether it's fire police dispatch you know doctor nurse etc and so having a tool that will help deregulate because i mean i know the things like you know um uh cold water immersion and that kind of thing it's great but i live in florida it's very very hard for me to get a bucket full of ice i see all my northern you know instagram friends oh i'm breaking the ice off my tub I'm like dude i I, I can't get ice here my, my fridge only makes so much so yeah, having some yeah. other options that you can put on you know i mean as soon as you get home it might be you did half a shift and now it's 11 p.m but you can sit there in your living room and just kind of do some breath work while that's working as well to help the shift worker deregulate and try and get better sleep yeah the what the ioc researchers call it is a uh, uh, flight dysrhythmia so you can affect flight dysrhythmia, otherwise known as jet lag. Uh, and they even, I'll, I'll actually send you the, uh, um, the research paper they did it on it. Cause there's, there's actual protocols to use in the plane. So after takeoff, mid flight, before landing and what to do before you want the body to go full parasympathetic so that you can get into that sleep state faster. Um, so jet lag leading up to the Tokyo after the Olympics moved to the right one year, about three months, three or four months uh, before the opening ceremonies, the government of Japan uh, told the IOC, Hey, we are not letting any athletes come into the Olympic village until five days before their first, before opening ceremonies. So, Think about that for a second. It used to be five weeks 
So trainers would bring their athletes in and they would have these, um, you know, acclimation periods, get used to the temperature, get used to humidity. Most importantly, get used to the circadian rhythm, getting their body set up. So taking it from five weeks and, and compressing it to five days, the, the, the trainers and coaches were losing their minds. They reach out to the IOC. Hey, what have you seen out there that's non-drug and non-invasive, right? These are Olympic athletes. They're all getting tested. Um, what have you guys seen out there that helps get the athlete into a, their circadian rhythm as quickly as possible? And they already were doing katsu research anyway, so it was a natural win. So all these articles came out during Tokyo Summer Games. You know, we got a, we got a lot of uh, a lot of good press out of the Olympics in in Tokyo. But um, yeah, it absolutely helps with sleep. Absolutely beautiful. Well, for people listening, where can they learn more about katsu and even order one for themselves? Uh, Katsu.com. K a a t s u dot com kilo alpha alpha tango sierra uniform and if you're watching us you can see down my email address right there jd at katsu.com jd at katsu.com and uh anybody that listens uh to the show we got a discount for you just reach out to me and we'll give it to you I actually yeah. don't have it made right now, so <laughs> well, we'll discuss that. <laughs> and just so you know, we we can see each other, but this is an audio only recording, just because um, there's only me. This is it, and I, I realize that most people don't watch the podcast anyway. So we'll have all this stuff on the the show notes, which will be the web page attached to this episode. We just we didn't talk about the frogman swim. Oh God, the frogman swim! Uh, one of the coolest things that I'm involved with, I think. Um, Short story, uh, back in, oh, I think it was December 2009, a guy named Dan Kanasen, uh stepped on a ID, pressure plate ID in Afghanistan. Um, the ID went low order, uh, which means the whole charge did not go off, um, but he took the brunt of the low order uh, explosion and lost both legs above the knees. Um, at the time, I was at SOCOM headquarters in Tampa, Florida. And um, there were, gosh, I want to say it was about 25 of us that got together to try and simply raise some money for, for Dan's family. Um so we did that in January 2010, coldest day of the year. It was 37 degrees outside. Water temp was 55. <laughs> I remember it like it was yesterday because I skinned it and I suffered as a result of that. But what we did is we all agreed to uh, try and reach out to friends and family, kind of like our Christmas card lists, if, if you will, and get people to donate something you know, 20 bucks or whatever to, to help this family out. And we did that. And afterwards we were at the American Legion uh, on the other side of the swim in Tampa Bay. We did this in Tampa Bay, starting on the St. Petersburg side and then 5k across ended on the Tampa Bay side. And um, so cool, cool swim, uh, 25, 30 of us did it. 
Um, totally under the radar, didn't run it through the Coast Guard or local police or anything. Um, so anyway, we end up back at the American Legion uh, after the swim, having beers and chit-chatting. And we add up all the uh, we added up all the money. And we were hoping, honestly, to get somewhere between three and five thousand dollars to to help Dan Kanasen's family. And we added it all up and it was crazy, man. We we had, I mean, yeah. I, I picture, if you will, a uh, so there's there's everybody's got beers. We got this table at the American Legion, and people are pulling up like wadded uh, uh, checks and dollar bills and IOUs written on bar napkins, wh- whatever they had, and they're putting it on this one table, and uh, and one of the guys Dan starts adding up all the all the, uh, you know, the IUs and uh, IOUs and checks and stuff. And it added up to $30,000. And we were like, whoa, that is freaking awesome. And we kind of all walked away from that, realizing that we were onto something that people wanted to uh, help in any way they, they could. And money's one way that can help with with foundations and whatnot so um anyway that was back in 2010 now the swim we just did our 14th iteration of the swim and what we've done is we've uh, made a partnership with the navy seal foundation and all the proceeds from the swim go to the foundation and each year the foundation has agreed to earmark those funds specifically for the gold star families so the surviving uh, uh spouses kids uh left behind after a, a tragedy of losing one of our own and uh so what's happened is each year more and more gold star family members come to this event because what what happens is we 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 allow 150 swimmers in each swimmer now agrees to raise at least two thousand dollars to the navy seal foundation to ultimately help with gold star family programs and each swimmer swims for one of our fallen so like this last january i swam for uh, joe price an old friend of mine and the minimum is $2,000. But what happens is people reach out across their network saying, hey, this is all about helping Gold Star families and people reach deep into their pockets. And it's really cool. So each year, the swim has made more and more and more. And uh, we just got the numbers back from uh, this last January for the 14th time we did the swim. We we uh, we made over a million dollars for the, the foundation, which is pretty, pretty amazing considering you're talking about 150 guys and 150 kayakers working together to raise resources for that for that effort. And um, so, yeah, I, I love it. It's um, become kind of a passion project uh, for me. I've been invited to be on the board, so I'm on the board for the swim. And now that swim is uh, also in Boston, and it looks like we're going to be starting one in um, Annapolis, in New York, 
and it's just uh it's it's turning into its own incredible um effort and and it's really helping our our fallen teammates out or more specifically their families because if you're not familiar with what happens when we lose one of our own um the foundation covers uh everything really so all the family and extended family being flown to the memorial ceremony the rental cars the hotels uh the food uh the kids uh are are folded into incredible scholarship um opportunities and all that stuff takes as you can imagine takes a lot of money but it is super super cool beautiful well thank you for telling me i i believe and please correct me if i'm wrong sarah wilkinson chad's widow um, we saw each other at Sandlot Jacks last year, and I don't know if it was Tampa or Boston, but I know she was about to go to one of the events. Yes, you're exactly you're exactly right. Um, yeah, it, you know we have this party at, at at this bar called Hula Bay afterwards. The swim ends at the American Legion on the Tampa side. Then after everybody gets back, yeah, so so as an example, so I'm coming out of the water. Uh, Job Price's sister is standing there waiting for me. She has a, a coin. She puts it around my uh, neck. And, uh, you know, you get a big hug from one of these Gold Star family members that's there. You wait for everybody to finish. We even have a platoon wave. Bunch of veteran team guys swimming with all their kit. Uh yeah, Chris, the gov organizes that. It's just incredible. And then everybody gets back to the Legion and we all move up to Hula Bay for an after party. And this year we had 25 Gold Star families represented with seven, about almost 70 family members from 25 Gold Star families mixing with guys that worked and lived and deployed and interacted with their sons or their husbands and or their dads and seeing all that interaction is just god man is one of the coolest coolest things i've ever been part of and um yeah i'm really really proud of what we've achieved with that it's amazing yeah i got to have uh mama lee on the show mark lee's mother you know oh. so i've had so many gold star family members just had had one who lost and they were they were a sibling um and you know uh-huh. so you get all these different perspectives of what it's like if you're the parent if you're the you know the children of if you're the brother or sister who i'm learning now are kind of the forgotten ones you know you think about your, the parents and how sad it was but the siblings of of this grown you know warfighter still have their own issues, especially if they were a younger sibling, you know, their brother or sister was 18 or 19, they might be 12. So it's it's yeah. so important for us to kind of wrap our arms around them. With people listening, how can they help? How can they contribute if they happen to be the kind of person that would want to swim or, or support on that side? What are the best places or where can we direct these people to go? Uh, well, the, 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 best, the best way to get involved is to go to Tampa, Tampa Bay, frogman.com tampa bay frogman.com and um all the donations go to a great cause and the foundation does a lot of different stuff but we've really uh worked closely with them to earmark the funds that come out of the swim to help the gold star families and it's freaking awesome beautiful well thank you so much for you know what you've done and, and for letting people know how they can help 
So I want to throw a quick closing questions at you if you have time. Oh, I got I got time. Brilliant. All right. The first one I love to ask, is there a book or other books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. You know, as a guy transitioning uh, that transitioned out of the military, I recently read a book that my wife asked me to read, and I wish I'd read it. Not that it would have necessarily changed my glide slope, but it's a great book to read in between chapters in life. And um, it's called From Strength to Strength, I believe, by Arthur Clark, From Strength to Strength. Uh, that is a good one. And uh, the other one is the Israeli, oh, man, what is that one called? I'm looking on my bookshelf right now. And I don't see it here right now. But anyway, it's um, Startup. I think it's called Startup Nation, uh, the Israeli Economic Miracle or something like that. You might have to look up the details, but I believe it's called Startup Nation. And it's about Israel and it's about startups. And it is the reason I ended up going with katsu versus it's it's so funny man i had it down to two organizations one was massive and one was tiny almost basically a startup and uh one was an executive recruiter for amazon i was well on my way in that in that direction and the other uh, was katsu and i was torn and a mentor of mine if you're listening to this and you don't have a mentor, please get a mentor outside your family. That's a whole nother podcast. But a mentor of mine uh, sat down with me and said, hey, before you make your decision, read this book. It's short. Take you know a couple sittings. You can read it. Read this book. And I read it and I never, I never looked back. And the, and the premise, the very, very basics are... If I had gone to a big organization like Amazon Executive Recruiting, and, and you look at the organization of Amazon as this giant pie chart, Executive Recruiting is this tiny, tiny wedge. And his point was, they're bringing you in to work inside that wedge. And you may promote, you probably will, but you, no matter how long you're at that organization, the odds of you leaving that tiny, tiny wedge inside that giant organization are very small. As opposed to going to a startup where walking in the door, you're going to be essentially one of the executives. You're going to be exposed to marketing. You're going to be exposed to uh, research and development, sales, of course, everything that the company touches, you're going, you're going to be involved in, you know, packaging, unboxing videos, everything. You're going to be involved with everything. And if you go into uh, a, a small organization where you're touching just about everything, let's say the organization fails, or let's say they let you go. You actually are now more valuable to the marketplace because now you're not just a retired military guy. You're now a retired military guy with a background in business development, marketing, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. 
And when you go to another startup, you're now they're now going to want you more. And he said, you can play this game for decades where you go to an organization and they flatline or fail, and then you step up and go to another organization, eventually becoming uh, your, your, your own boss. And I thought, shit, that makes so much sense to me. <laughs> and of course, Katsu never failed. So I've been at Katsu <laughs> the whole time. And uh, it's it uh, honestly, you know, I, I could not have uh, asked for a better a better outcome because um, you know I touched on it earlier very quickly, but uh, when you look at some of the teammates that I have that are on opioids or drinking themselves to sleep every night because of neuropathic pain or residual limb pain. Um, if you can if you can introduce something to those guys gender neutral guys i mean guys and girls if you can introduce something to them that um is not a drug and is non invasive and it can improve their quality of life um you know game on man that's that's exponential stuff versus an athlete that you're just making um, you know, little improvements to when you really can help change somebody's life. That's pretty cool. Well, I love that pie chart analogy as well, because that's how I felt in the fire service. One thing we're told over and over again is, oh, if you want to make a difference, you got to promote. And I feel like all the way up to, to basically chief, you're still in that tiny sliver of that pie. And I kind of had this insight and I had a slightly different lens because I worked for East Coast, West Coast, four different departments. I would argue probably one of the best departments in America and one of the worst. So pretty, you know, diverse kind of perspective. But the ultimate, and even Jocko Willink, like I asked, I posed this question to him and my frustrations and this is where I'm at. And, you know, I'd like to like to say that I had pretty decent ownership of my, you know, place in the fire service. And ultimately it was, it was step outside that pie chart completely, make a difference from the outside pushing in. So I can totally understand from a slightly different perspective, but yeah, sometimes, you know, being the, the tiny fish in the giant pond is not the way that you affect change. And, you know, it doesn't matter how fast you swim, you know, maybe, maybe you need to find a different pond completely. Yeah. Yeah. Small fish in a giant pond. Yeah, exactly. And so you, you, you you go the opposite extreme, big giant fish in a tiny pond. Absolutely. <laughs> or you just, you know, dig your own. <laughs> All right. Well, then the next question, what about a movie and or documentary that you love? Oh, man. Apart from Top Gun. Ah! <laughs> did you see the second one? I did. It was brilliant. Cheesy as hell. But I mean, the first one was, was in the 80s. So, I mean, I think they yeah. they replicate. The only thing that I didn't like a little bit, they almost did exactly the same scene with the piano. And I'm like, that could have been a little bit more imaginative rather than singing the same song with the, you know. But apart from that, <laughs> I thought it was amazing. It almost felt like they're taking shortcuts, right? Yes, exactly. Like copy and paste. <laughs> Well, the uh, the the series—it's not a movie; it's a series. But the series my wife and I are watching right now, uh, the Chosen, is uh, you know it's a little—I mean, it's definitely on the religious side. But I I am I am absolutely enamored by by that. As is my wife, will truly enjoying that. Brilliant. Any documentaries at all? Well, I know yours is going to be really good. 
It certainly uh, will. It certainly will. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think of one I've seen recently that jumps right out. You know, the did you ever see the, uh, I guess, yeah, it's a documentary by National Geographic um, about the climber, uh, Free Solo. Yes, Alex Honnold. Alex Honnold, yeah. Um, that, like, that, that documentary, um, like, changed me. Like, that, that was a whole, that was kind of a, uh, a very well done documentary. Um, before I saw it, when I saw what the subject matter was, I was like, are you kidding me? Idiots climbing without ropes, dude deserves to fly. You know what I mean? Like, that was my initial reaction and then i watched it i was on the plane and uh i found myself continuously rewinding uh parts of it to watch him again and listen to what he had to say and um just fascinating that perspective that there are some things in this life uh worth doing even if they mean potentially tragic catastrophic consequences um it really i really enjoyed it so free solo that's a good one if you haven't seen free solo do yourself a favor and watch it absolutely yeah i want to get alex on one day because again you talk about ownership and mastery of your skill set because it's not irresponsible the same with a lot of the base jumpers i've had on like they're they're kind of um the way they say it, you know, normally even a professional, well, as long as you're 90% safe. Well, if you're a free climber or a base jumper, you can only have 100% safe because anything else is is death. So actually right. the diligence that these men and women have and the mastery of their craft would be an amazing insight to bring over to the first responder and military professions listening. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, because he would tell you he was 100% safe. He would not have ever taken on that challenge if he was not 100% sure that he could do it. And uh, that was just, yeah, great, great analogy and carry over to base jumping too. So have you seen, it's a similar documentary. Uh, it's called The Alpinist. I've heard about it. I haven't seen it. You got to watch. I can't say anything about it because it will take you on oh, okay, another journey. Okay. But um I would say it parallels it, and I, I believe the quote was that the I forget the gentleman's name now, but the subject of the Alpinist was An Alex Honnold's hero. So I don't need to say any more than that. Ah, yeah, okay, phenomenal okay. climber. All right, all right. Well, speaking of amazing people, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Somebody that I personally know. It doesn't have to be. I worked for a guy um, after uh, Admiral McRaven. Actually, Admiral McRaven would be, would be good as well. Um, but I, I worked very closely with uh, General uh, Joe Votel. And um, he, he left SOCOM. He became CENTCOM commander. He's now retired. Ranger guy, uh, four star. Um, and the reason I bring up his name is back to that um, stress on the force in uh, um, uh, the behavioral health piece. Um, 
One of the things he did when he was the SOCOM commander is he met, I'm forgetting the, the, the lady's name on CNN, but he did a interview with her and he was total open kimono about his and his wife's, but primarily his uh, struggles that he dealt with throughout his career and how he and his wife uh, dealt with them. And I'm telling you, it was gold because just about everybody in the command and outside the command in the special operations community, which is now like 73,000 people. But a lot of people saw that interview and saw that as, oh my gosh, it not only is it okay to seek care when, when you need it, but the commander of all, all of our commander is really leaning forward and encouraging it to please, please do it. Um, I think general retired Joe Votel would be an awesome guy to have on your, on your show because he, um, he influenced in a positive way, a lot of people and he's still doing it. So today. Beautiful. Well, thank you. So the very last question that I have before we make sure everyone knows where to find you over and above the website, what do you do to decompress? So it's funny, uh, 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 a lot of people are in, in my world that I came from are, are extroverts. Um, I am a deep, deep, far right, uh, maybe far left, I don't know, but introvert, meaning uh, the way I re-energize is, um, you know, not uh, amongst and around other people. So... Um, being on a surfboard in a lineup is one of my favorite things. Being on a paddleboard all by myself out on the Gulf, one of my favorite things. Uh, here recently with all three kids, we've we've started kiteboarding, and I absolutely love that. Um, but again, active by myself in nature, just about anything in nature. That that's about uh, my favorite way. Uh, to decompress and then my favorite things to do are things with my family out outside so skiing kiteboarding that kind of stuff so it's interesting you said you know most of the community is extrovert i think that's what a lot of us think in the first responder professions as well you go on a din the dinner table and you know there's the guys you know spinning yarns and you know the the firehouse clown all that kind of stuff I had a guy on who wrote the uh, Introverse Edge, and it was recommended to me by a friend of mine who went th through Green Beret selection. He don't think he ever deployed. He actually had his own kind of downward spiral, had horrendous childhood trauma pre pre military. But when he came on, he said the definition of an introvert is you can be in you know groups of people, but he said where do you get your energy from? So just like your definition. I think a lot of us, I, I assumed I wasn't like the center of attention or anything, but, you know, I was kind of in the middle. But I realized, no, I'm the dude where I can be in a party or whatever, but you'll turn around and I'm gone. That's when I'm like, all right, I'm done. Out. So <laughs> I re-energize I re either on my own with my dog or, you know, with, with an intimate relationship, my wife, you know, just a person with a coffee. And I think a lot of us do. And what's interesting is if you look at how many people drink to socialize especially the pregame 
there's probably a lot more of the population that is actually introvert than we think. Because if I you, it. you know, I believe it. You promote, how many of you people do you know that I need to be in a crowd to energize? I think most of us would admit there's an element of anxiety going out and that that's okay. But I think it when you look at the other guys, you think, oh, they're all, you know, life of the party. What's wrong with me? That's a skew perspective. I think most of us are actually introvert. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree with that. And, uh, you, 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 you kind of brought up something going back to the book. I got another book for you. ADHD 2.0 ADHD, the number two decimal zero. So I, I, I'm an ADD ADHD uh, guy and I used to joke about it. My parents would joke about it. I joke about we joke about with each other, you know, squirrel. You know, that that was me. I was the guy constantly getting distracted. And then is when I got out and I went through this uh it was like a TBI blast treatment protocol counseling and stuff. One of the things they did is they did this battery, these various batteries of tests. And one of them was an ADHD test. And I tested on a scale of one to 10, I was like a 9.93 or something all the way over. And they're like, oh yeah, you're clinical ADHD. And I was like, what? Because, you know, I grew up that that's seen as like a bad thing, right? And um, what I learned in, in the guys, the, the docs I was working with, they're like, actually, you would be pleasantly surprised how many people in your line of work are actually clinically ADHD. If you think about the ability, because no no brain can do two things simultaneous, but an ADHD brain, ADHD brain has the ability to bounce back and forth through various modes of information flow. And I would argue it's probably the same in EMT and police and fire and on, in the SEAL teams. I mean, think of, you got one radio freak in this ear, you got another radio freak in this ear, you're, 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 you're speaking, you're giving orders, you're tracking, uh, uh, fast movers, helos, this, that, whatever you're in a patrol, you're moving, you're, you're doing all this shit seemingly at the same time, but you're not, nobody can do it all at the same time. And what they've found is a lot of guys that spent a lot of time in special operations, uh, they actually, uh, uh, grow more into the ADHD world. And then when they get out, it's a process to kind of slowly kind of come out of it. Um, but anyway, the book is fascinating. It's written by two docs. They're both, uh, uh, you know, ADHD, uh, grew up with it and, um, their perspective and they talk, uh, diet, they talk activity, they talk what, you know, good fits in society, bad fits in society, all this stuff coming from these two docs are both ADHD guys. And it's, 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 it's a great book. I did it on audiobook, but, uh, and, and it, and it's fine on audiobook. It's probably more effective if you read it, but as an ADHD guy, <laughs> I do a lot more audiobooks, man. Brilliant. Well, thank you. I've never heard that one mentioned before, but it's amazing. This, this onion gets more and more skins, you know, but it's, it's, it's incredible because the more things I hear like this, 
the more you can bring to that multidimensional problem that each individual human being is experiencing and then hone in some things that maybe aren't obvious and the perfect example in mental health is well you know you were in afghanistan so it was what you saw and we both know that there's so many other layers that if you just focus on that it's no wonder that person feels like they're not getting better because we're not addressing childhood trauma and tbis and sleep deprivation and psych meds and alcohol and you know even the personality type yeah yeah all right well, very last question then. If people want to reach out to you specifically, you talked about katsu.com. Are there any areas on social media or other sites they can get hold of you? Yeah, LinkedIn's the best one for me. Uh, if you just do LinkedIn and type in John, J-O-H-N, Doolittle, D-O-O-L-I-T-T-L-E. Uh, if there's a bunch of John Doolittles, which I doubt, but if there is, just type in the word katsu and it, it you'll you'll get me. I'm wearing sunglasses with a hat on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, John, I want to say thank you so much. I mean, as I talk about so often, when... When we hear stories, firstly, like I said, of combat, the, you know, the, the, the horrors and, and the, the beautiful humanity, that is an imperative conversation, but also the courageous vulnerability of the mental health issue that we have as well. And so between all that, your career, you know, what you're doing now with Katsu, it's been a phenomenal conversation. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous, almost, almost three hours of conversation. Uh, James, that's... Uh... It's my pleasure, my my uh, honor. Thank you very much for you making the time, and thank you uh, to Alex, of course, for for introducing us, and and thank you for what you guys are are doing with the Seven X Project. You you guys are going to help a lot of people with what you're doing, and that that's pretty damn cool. 